We need to bring a sandbag in here. That mic, th that mic is just heavy for that thing. Chili's old mic worked great on there. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's going on, gentlemen? Welcome to the Three or Seven Podcast. Um, hey, hey, how's your headphone volume, John? It's good. Not too loud. No, it's good. Okay, sweet. You know, we were talking about something earlier. We just got done with a little team PT this morning. Got us a good mountain bike ride in. Dude, I was impressed with your mountain biking skills, John. Hey, thanks. Yeah. It was, you, uh, it was next level. We don't have that at home. <laughs> well, are the trails in Arizona like really groomed or like, I mean, packed dirt or? Just more uh, loose gravel. That's what I'm used to. That roots and the wet, like the water. The mud, we don't have that. Yeah. Well, Chad took, a, took you down the darn biggest washed-out trail on the whole property up there. <laughs> Your son got 70-something miles in the other day, right? That's right, 73. Just turned 13. That's intense, dude. Yeah, what that's what impressive. kind of bike was he riding? Gravel bike. He, ride, so, he rides a pivot gravel bike. Okay. So that's like a road bike, with but with tr just, treaded tires, right? Exactly. Just a little bit beefier. Uh, there's just a little more clearance between the tire and the frame, so... It's kind of right in the middle between a mountain bike and a road bike, road tire. Yeah. Boy, I bet you're proud of him. That's a, that's a haul on a bike, man. I haven't yes, covered 70-something miles on a bike yet. Yeah. It's, that's it's, awesome. Yep. Was awesome. he stove? Uh, well, I guess you haven't seen him. Since. I haven't. Uh, he's pretty quiet. He could tell he was pretty proud of himself, but he was he was keeping it to himself. His mom, on the other hand, she was fired up. <laughs> it's, it is, is he still aspiring to go the seal route or the military route how's he how's he doing with that uh i think he kind of goes back and forth i mean it's I early think, yeah he's he's young i mean i would like to see him do that but uh my daughter's actually starting at embry riddle this year which is an aeronautical school which is the coolest school i've ever seen i didn't even know colleges like this exist so uh seeing that with her i think it would be an awesome fit for him too so we'll see where he goes with it. How old is she? She just turned. She turned eighteen. She'll be eighteen in August. Dang it, man! Yeah, you got all. You got the whole spectrum covered, as far as ages go. Yeah, we're getting there. <laughs> Down to one. Um. Oh well, while we were out doing team PT, John was asking me. Obviously, you know, we're talking about. First of all, John's a cool cat. Uh, he 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 really. And I know you would, but you fit right in with our lifestyle, um, our, our perspective. I think our beliefs, and uh, so it so we can have we can have deeper than surface level conversations with John. So we're talking about the things that are kind of going on in the in society right now, because I think that we should talk about those things, and we should be aware of what's going on and. <laughs> in our nation and in the world. There's nothing wrong with that. By no means were we being negative about it. It's just part of the conversation that we were having on a PT. And, John, you asked me, I said, you know, well, the Bible talks about when we see these things happening. Um, I said it said rejoice because your redemption draws near. And you said, well, where where did you, where where is that actually in Scripture? So I looked that up. I want to share it with you guys that, that are listening to the podcast too. 
because I think this is a good thing for us to all bring to mind as we go through the day-to-day and and uh, see the things that are going on. This is an interesting portion of Scripture right here in Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, "And there, And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. That was that's interesting to me. Distress of nations with perplexity, complicated issues causing distress on the nations of the earth. Then he goes on to say the sea and the waves roaring. Well, we see that quite often. Uh, men's hearts failing them for fear. Boy, have we. Does that sound right? Men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when you see these things begin to come, to pass, then look up. And lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Could you say we were beginning to see these things happening? This is just a wonderful description of, of, <laughs> of what we see. Yeah. Distress of nations with perplexity. Men's hearts failing them for fear. And for looking after those things which are to come on earth. You know, there's a lot of things going on that I think really fit within the construct of that portion of Scripture as Jesus talks to us about the closing of this age. And so I was wrong, John. I just wanted to point this out. It does not say directly to rejoice Maybe I misinterpreted this, but in verse 28, he says, when these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, which in my mind could symbolize rejoicing. Lift up your heads, look up, for your redemption draws nigh. Man, come on, son. A little different perspective, right? Yeah. What do you think about that, Big John? Well, it's just like I said on the trail. I mean, as a Christian, I've never been so confident with what's going on. It's it's very easy to be bold in my stance because if you if you can't step back and not make sense of some of this stuff, I mean, clearly there's spiritual warfare going on. And as a a Christian, as a believer in Christ, to me, it's it's almost exciting that I can stand firm in my faith in this, and uh, it almost gives me a a better opportunity to be able to share my testimony and be bold. Yeah. Yeah. I agree a hundred percent. And that's when you said that out on the trail, that's directly crossed my mind. It's like, yeah, John, you're exactly right. It is becoming more and more easy to make a case for Christ as the, um, the, everything kind of degrades. Um, and it's making, I think that people are much more hungry for 
Christ and and for answers uh, than they were back in, what, the 90s? You remember the 90s, man? It's like nothing. Like, everything was good, man. Everybody had, the economy was good. I mean, the, the worst thing that I can remember happening in the 90s was Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky deal. You know what I mean? And that, that was like an uproar. Yep. Oh, man, if that happened right now, they, it wouldn't even be on the news because nobody would care. Yep. It would depend on who that happens to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true, man. That's true. But, man, what wonderful times that we are living in. When you look at it from that perspective, and I haven't read that um, read that portion of, of Scripture in quite a while, so I'm glad it came to mind this morning, and I'm glad you challenged me to look it up and kind of read more into the context of it. So, what do you think, Blake? Well, I think that uh, it makes people want, it makes it easier for us to make a case because when everything's good in the world, it's easy to have confidence in who you are or confidence in the government or confidence in this and that. But when it's all when they're coming off the rails and you can't have confidence in anything, you can look and say, well... The only thing that's ever held true through all time is the Bible. And it just, I mean, that's a really good point John made, that it's easy easy to make a case for it because it's always something you can fall back on that's always true and mm-hmm. always right. Yeah, and I think there's more evidence. There's more evidence that you can present. Um, and specifically, John pointed out the, the evidence of spiritual warfare whatever you want to call it the battle with within within the the spiritual realm um and and we being a part of that as humans uh i think it's it is raging now and us because of our awareness of it and the way it works and the constructs of it we do have much more we do have many more i think tangible examples yeah. of it you know built into our day-to-day testimony um these days so i don't know man solid stuff uh well i've got some good news for y'all i, I want to ask john here in just a minute how was your experience in the airport oh boy uh i prayed a lot about it because it tends to drive me a little bit crazy I just, uh, I just, I can't get on board. It doesn't make sense. The logic's not there. And, you know, I actually handled it pretty well, but uh, I just can't stand the hypocrisy in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, Blake forced us to fly last weekend and we made it all the way through the airport unmasked. Well, let me first say, we walk in unmasked. <laughs> we walked in unmasked, and this guy says, Whoa, sir, y'all, you guys have to put your mask on. And I said, Well, all right, I've got my fake mask, so I'll put it on. Chad said, Well, I don't have one. So he hands Chad a mask wrapped up in this plastic packaging. And Chad says, Thank you, sir. And he stands there in front of the guy and unpacks it and holds the mask in his hand and hands the trash back to the man. <laughs> and just, here you go, buddy. I really appreciate that. And walks on and never puts his mask on, just holds it. So awesome. you can continue on with your story. So we, we went right on through the, the whole airport. And it was, um, it was really, it was really funny. 
Man, because they were, they were, I, I was watching people. I wanted to see how they would react to us because obviously we were the oddballs. The airport was packed. Yeah. It was more, the Atlanta airport was more crowded than I had ever seen it in my life. Me too. I thought the same thing. It was insane, dude. Mm -hmm. And so we're walking through here, packed in here, getting herded around like sheep. And um, people are like looking at us. And they look at us, and some of them, mainly males, when they saw we weren't had our mask on, they'd pull their mask off. Yeah, it's empowering, right? And they were like, and I wanted to tell, and I was thinking some of these people, I mean, I wanted to like walk up to them and be like, hey, man, I'm not exempt from wearing, like I don't have some medical, I'm doing this as a choice. So you can take your mask off too and be just like me, right? And, and and we're in the same boat. So that was really cool um, because, like you said, it is a little contagious or empowering to others. We make it all the way through the airport, all the way up to the gate, the gateway, <laughs> <laughs> where you, you scan your boarding pass to board the plane. And here's this lady, Delta employee, and Blake quickly scans his boarding pass and, and heads for the gate. And I'm right behind him. And she covers the, the scanner with her hand. And she's like, you cannot scan your ticket, talking to me, until you put a mask on. And she proceeded to tell me that coronavirus was a real thing. I'm glad she told me that because... I had forgotten, you know, it's been about six months since I had coronavirus and it knocked my butt in the dirt. Um, so I had forgotten it was a real thing. I had my, I had just, I was thinking it was fake again. Uh, and so she told me that it was a real thing and that uh, she had her mask on so that she could keep me safe and that I needed to do the same thing. So I went ahead and that I, I, she, I was not getting on that plane until I put my mask on. Yeah. So that was where we had to put it on at for the duration of the flight. So did you not have yours on? No, not when I scanned. But she let you go? Yeah. But he, he huh. slipped by her. He, he, Listen, I, when you walk through the airport at 5 o'clock in the morning with your sunglasses on and you've got this big burly beard and you're half bald and your hair's sticking up everywhere <laughs> and you look like you've just you look like you've just went AWOL. Ain't no... <laughs> Either folks are going to say something to you or they ain't going to say nothing to you. You're going to get full force one or the other. And so that's the way Chad walked through the airport. That's pretty impressive. You made it all the way on the plane without a mask. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was drawing all of her attention. Um, like Blake said, I did wear my big blue sunglasses the whole way through I mean, I just wanted to look as weird as I possibly could <laughs> just to, like Blake said, e either draw attention to myself or like make people say, eh, I don't really want to pick a fight with this dude. You know what I mean? And I guess it works both ways. But, um, but yeah, man, that was our experience at the airport. So I want to encourage you guys that are listening, uh, if you're going to fly, you can make it through the Atlanta airport. And also the, what was that airport we flew into? Westchester? Uh, yeah, White Plains. White, in, Plains, in White Plains in New York. You can make it through that airport too. 
without your mask on until you get to the gate. And then if you want to get on the plane, unless you slip through like Blake. Um, by the way, I mean, if you guys want me to travel with you so I can draw all the attention to me and you can slip through the gate without your mask on, I'll do that for, for enough money. Well, and or you could just act like you're eating the whole time. I was going to say, what if you're just eating pecans the whole time? You're good to go, right? That's what our buddy Connor said. He said, he said, yeah, man, I did the same thing. He said, I made it all the way through the airport. He said, I put my mask on to scan my ticket. And then from that point forward, I took it off and ate for the entire three-hour flight. Yep. <laughs> oh, my gosh, man. Well, uh, just had to share that with you guys. So, I'm glad uh, glad you made it through too, John. It is can be a stressful environment. And uh, hey, guys, we're just talking about this because it's funny as crap. We're not trying to upset anybody. It's it's absolutely so ridiculous that it is hilarious. It is hilarious. <laughs> yep. You know, but uh, I'm fortunately, just, it's just the airport. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And fortunately, we didn't have chili with us. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's not quite as seasoned as we are, you know. He's not quite as seasoned at playing the game um, in life, which you have to play sometimes. Yeah. You know. So, good PT this morning. Good job, Blake. Getting fall behind. Yeah, good job. I'm glad you showed up a little late, but, you know, you'll... You'll learn to follow directions and make it on time one of these days. Well, um, how'd you like them bibs? That was pretty nice. Yeah, pretty comfortable. Make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah I liked them. Do you think? Do you think that mountain biking fits with your Ironman training at all, or is, um, is road biking totally different? It's just I I enjoy it, but with my job, the hours I work. It's an all day thing. I just don't have time. I don't have time for all of it. So I just can't get the miles in. And that's that's what it is. It's just time on the seat. So regardless, it's just like time on your feet, right? Yeah. As long as you're putting time on the seat, it's the same thing, I believe. But, you know, I'm kind of winging this whole thing anyways. So we'll see. So what how, what do you do? What do you do for a living, John? Uh, I'm a journeyman lineman. So I build and maintain power lines. How'd you get into that, brother? You know, um, this was one of these choices, or I guess one of these things that was so clear God was speaking to me, and that's how I got into this trade. So I built uh, homes with my dad for 10 years. My dad, my, my family's been in custom homes forever, and uh, I was doing that with him, and 08, 07, 08, that, the whole uh, everything come crashing down. And that was bad times. Yeah. yeah, I saw the writing on the wall. And, um, it was tough for my dad's company because I know he was, he felt like he felt obligated to keep me going. I had a baby at the time and, um, you know, young married couple. And I, I know he, he owned a lot of that and I kind of kept just keeping the business going, keeping the paychecks flowing, you know, that was tough. And, uh, I had like three or four different people come and tell me, Hey, you know, you should really be a lineman. I didn't even know what alignment was. I was, I thought that it was just like changing out light bulbs for real. Yeah. And I was like, okay, okay. Well, why do you think they were telling you that? Well, I just, it was a God thing. I mean, this was this God put this in my life and 
I prayed about it and it was a hard decision, you know, cause my, my dad's always been, you know, I've always looked up to my dad. He's, you know, my best friend. He's, he was everything. So for me to leave his company, which I did a lot for his company too. So I knew it would hurt him, but at the same time, I was hoping it would free him from, you know, the feeling, the pressure of keeping me going. Yeah. You yeah. Know? What and kind of work was that? Just doing? building custom homes. Okay. Building homes. Yeah. But at that, t- at that time, custom, you know, Custom homes was not what people were spending money on. Okay. You know, so it was a struggle for a while. But were you actually laboring for them out there? Yeah. So I did. I, yeah, I I mean, I pretty much would do all like foundation and then all the outside stuff. And we did a lot of like real big backyards, like Uh million dollar yards, like big type stuff, custom stuff. And uh, I mean, yeah. Jack of all trades, master of none. That was my thing. Yeah. So you pretty much do it all. So, how, I mean, at what point did you, like, I, that had to have been a hard conversation. I, I Well, maybe it wasn't, but, like, say, well, okay, this is it. So, it, it pretty much went, it pretty much went like this. I, I had felt, I had felt God leading this to me, right? So, I prayed a lot about it, prayed a lot about it. I didn't want, I didn't want to leave my dad. I didn't want to become a lineman, but I knew it was probably a good decision. But I prayed about it, I prayed about it, so I ended up, applying for the apprenticeship and you know I don't you probably don't remember but I said when I applied for the basic course I knew that writing that application I was coming mm-hmm. because God told me you're going as soon as I heard about it I knew I was going and it wasn't a question and I felt the same way when I filled out the application for this apprenticeship I knew it was going to happen and at the time they the, the economy was so bad they only hired three people that year for the apprenticeship and I was one of them. Um, so I prayed about it. God opened the door and I just listened and I went and, uh, it was, it was hard. Uh, but you know, I think it, it worked out the way it, it should have and line works changed my life. I mean, it's changed me financially. Um, we had great benefits. It helped me grow a lot as a man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's been tremendous. So it was a total God thing, and uh, thank, thankfully I listened and just followed him, you know. I'll tell you what, man. Lyman, you guys got a brotherhood going on, really. I mean, at least from, from the outside perspective, we've got some Lyman in our family. It seems like an awesome group of human beings doing some really hard things, man. Yeah. Yeah. And some really hard environments. Dangerous work. Mm-hmm. Um, is that culture that way out there? I, it may just be a it may just here be the here. Yeah. But like know. here, man, well, like guys have the stick the lineman stickers. Uh, like yeah, people take way. pride in it, man. They all dress yeah, the it's same. A, it's almost it's almost like over the top, right? Like linemen <laughs> think we're the coolest people in the world, which most people are like, Oh, you're a lineman? Oh, which team do you play for? <laughs> no, man, I build power lines. Yeah, yeah. Nobody cares what we do. Like, nobody really understands the depth of what we do, you know? Like, it always amazes me. We'll be we'll be changing out a pole or something, which is just an everyday thing for us. But the danger involved, what we're actually working with, with energized, you know, 12,000 volts or 7,200 or whatever we're working on, also not keeping you keeping your power on while we're doing it, People just don't have a clue. They don't. We, we we make good money, but in my opinion, we don't make enough. Yeah. 
I agree. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, man. Um, let's see. Do you do you have any like from from the line crew? Do you have any times that stand out just as far as like just like a like harsh, hard, difficult, dangerous? Anything, any stories that stand out, man. Oh, yeah. Because I, I, mean, I want to hear one of those just to kind of get a grasp on really the depth of what you guys do and what you guys go through. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I tell the younger guys, I mean, I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you a story that I was in a fire. And the fact of the matter is if you're in this trade long enough, you're going to see some stuff go down. And it's just, it's the nature of the trade. You have human error. You have equipment error. Um, most of the stuff we do, it's, it's all old stuff. So, you know, things fail, things happen. Um, I've, uh, I've been in a primary fire right over my head with melting, you know, metal melted into my body and stuff. And it really just explain that to us real quick. It's okay. What, what, what happened? He just passed over that. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's a, it's a good, it's a good lesson. And it's a good lesson. I tell all the younger guys because it's a, it's a real thing that happened. And part of the thing with like what we do is you want to see it for yourself. Like we have things in place that protect us, right? Like our trade is written in blood. Things have happened that you've learned from and you don't, cut corners right so like one of the lessons that you're told when you're getting brought up is that you don't trust anybody you see it for yourself you know what you're working on um it's kind of hard to explain with not really knowing electricity but there's just things you you see for yourself okay Mm -hmm. and uh i was working in california and we had uh in california everybody's trying to make a name for themselves. So there's always a big push on work and nobody really cares about the hands doing the work. It's always just a push to get work done, work done, work done. We're always under the thumb. So I think we had like a scheduled 15 hour outage or something. And the way they did this type of stuff is they just like take out a whole block of people out of power. And you'd have like seven or eight crews with cranes and changing everything out. Just updating like a whole neighborhood. Well, as a crew, you would get like two or three poles a night. And then that's what we did. We got ours done. We were cleaning up and a crew came up to me. is like, Hey, we just lost a guy. We need you to go make these jumpers. Basically you're going to take two wires and put them together. Okay. And, uh, like splice them together. Kind of. It's just like over the arm jumpers. So okay. it's making uh, one jumper meet, making a connection with two separate wires. Pretty much. Okay. And uh, normally, when you do, when you would do this, you would you would never do this under load. You would never you would never uh, you would never want to do what I did. And I got put into a bad situation, and I took someone's word for it. And what I thought I was doing wasn't what I was doing at all. But they failed to tell me that, and I failed to ask or look. So it's just as much my fault. Well, what happened was, is basically to try to make it to where you can understand it is I took, I had a, a piece of wire that was 7,200 volts and I hooked it up to another piece of wire that they had messed up the framing 
and it went to a dead ground. So that 7,200 volts went straight to ground, right in my face. So I'm working out of a bucket, so it's a little bit over my head like this. Mm -hmm. But as soon as it came close, the world just came coming down, just like massive fire. And I ducked, I hit the bucket, and I'm curled up in a ball just waiting for it to go. And those big uh, circuits, they just, they can see so much load without something happening. They just think it's more load, more load. So eventually that circuit kicked, means it turned off, mm -hmm. and that fire stopped. But I came out of that bucket, and I thought for sure my face was, like, gone. Yeah. And thank God nothing happened. It was, uh, I mean, I got some shrap metal in me, and some of my stuff caught on fire but i came out of it clean when when you when you did when you made that connection and you said that power went straight to ground mm -hmm. did it like blow up oh or, yeah just so it like my buddy said it was the worst fire he's ever seen but it was instant like oh, yeah. boom yep it's just uh, have you seen an electrical fire uh i i mean no, here and there maybe on on a on a uh, a youtube video yeah. or, or something like that but they're nasty yeah you know, they're nasty and that's the thing about our job i mean it, and the thing is too with our job a lot of people don't realize is it's not just electricity we work at heights yeah i do yeah. a lot of helicopter work um we sag wire at 12 to fifteen thousand pounds i mean think about that fifteen thousand pounds of tension weight like if you mess that up you're gonna kill somebody yeah you know yeah. So there's just a lot to it. I mean, there's tons of stuff. I, I've seen it. I've seen a lot. Mm -hmm. So, why do you think? Why do you think? You know, why do you think Jesus wanted you in this position, in this career field, in this trade? Because it sounds like you truly uh, have faith that this is where you were supposed to go. Yeah. And what you're supposed to be doing with your no, life. That's a great question. And this is something I've been wrestling around with. And I actually go to something that you talk about, about getting here in this position. And I, I really believe, um, example. So one of my best friends, I've known him since, since he's been in day one in the trade. So like I've known him for 12 years. When I came home from the proving ground, um, had an awesome moment with him. We had an awesome talk. He accepted Christ for the first time. And he told me after the fact, he says, you know what? You realize you've been talking to me about the same thing for 12 years? And that's it. And I think Lyman, tra traveling uh, trades in general are a rough group. Yeah. You got a lot of alcoholism, drugs infidelity, all these things, right? And I truly believe that I, I'm seeing, not just with me, a, a few guys, a, a few close friends of mine, and that ripple effect we were talking about, it works. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a slow process, but I really believe that um, we are actually, you know, serving God's kingdom through this trade. Yeah. And it's a rough trade. And, you know, I've never been a preacher and I've always just looked at life that, look, you're not a preacher, you know, you're not a preacher, but you could choose the way you carry yourself. Yeah. And to know that that actually works. Like yeah. when he said, you've been telling me the same thing for 12 years and hmm. 
you realize like, wow, this is working, mm -hmm. you know? And I want to, I want to talk about that, John, because, um, this is, a, I think, a really valuable topic because we've got a lot of men and women that listen to this podcast that are in trades, that are in, that are working, whether it's in law enforcement, fire. Uh, we've got tons of linemen that, that listen to this. Um, so people that are in those same, you're, I mean, dude, a line crew is essentially a SEAL platoon, but they're not going to war. They're deploying to work on power lines. So you guys are are, are facing the same. Uh, guys and girls are facing the same temptations that we face out on the road, right? Yep. And, and and even even deeper than that, um, you know, main we talk about body, soul, and spirit. So we're talking about more soul and spirit issues. But even body, man, it's so hard to keep your body healthy when you're when you're traveling, when you're doing that type of job. It's super. So look, man, you talk about this being the the harvest essentially being ripe within these subcultures almost, whether it's linemen, a SEAL platoon, a police department, a fire department, and your buddy says, you've been telling me this for, for 12 years. You now feel called and have felt called to be a light in this dark place. What does that look like from day to day? Like you say, you're not a preacher, how are how are people seeing Christ in you, or or and or, or how are you approaching them and telling them about Jesus? How does that work, man? You know what I mean. And yeah. this is for people that are in this position, man. That they need to understand that if the harvest is ripe, how would you say to go about being that light in a dark place? You personally, yeah. I think uh, I think this is this is where since I became part of the body of three of seven, where you guys have really helped me understand this. Cause I, I can, I can look back. My wife's name's July and I can, I can look back at our marriage and I could say like, babe, how do you have such like a communication with Christ? Like how, how are you feeling so connected? Like, I don't get that. I don't, I don't feel that. And what I realize is I just try to do it all on my own, you know? And this is what I'm trying to tell, like, some of the these newer guys that I'm trying to help them along is it's it's all about the small choices that we make, right? And when you become obedient with the little things, like cussing, right? I used to cuss like a sailor, and for what? Yeah. And that's why I have this rubber band on my wrist. Yeah, it might be corny, but guess what? I don't cuss that much anymore, and very rarely does it slip up. Yeah. But it takes a lot of discipline, and if I can control my mouth with this simple thing as cussing around a rough group of dudes, well, then God's like, all right, let's move on, right? And it, and I think that's what it is, and, and that's kind of how I approach it. It's just setting that standard and then upholding it, right? And... I, I just really believe in the effect of the ripple effect. Like people are watching what you're doing. You know, if they see your struggles, even in your struggles and how you handle it, people are watching. And I just, like my buddy said, I mean, clearly it's having more of an impact than you realize. If just yeah. holding a standard and living it out. Yeah. And that's all I try to do. And I'm not perfect. I screw up like everybody. I mean, I'll admit it. I don't, I'm not too proud to admit it. Yeah. But 
Well, if you didn't screw up every now and then in front of those people that are watching what you're doing, yeah, I think they would be less likely to approach you. Sure. When when the time was right, anyways. Right. You know what I mean. So I think that's that's part of it for yeah. sure. Whether you whether you want to or not. What did that conversation look like with your uh, with your close friend um, when he did accept Jesus? Did he approach you? Did you approach him? I, I mean, how, how did that go? I, I just uh, I came back and I was I was I was fired up after the proving ground. The proving ground to me was so impactful, and uh, man, I just laid into everybody, everybody that I loved. I I just gave him an earful, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and he just was ready to receive it. Mm-hmm. It was great. It was beautiful, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, and what were you what were you sharing with them? You talk about giving them an earful. What like what were you sharing with them? Just that you know, like just what I've learned about small choices, the impact they make. Um, just living your life to a standard, and mm-hmm. that's the thing about about this guy. He's he's a an amazing man. He'll do anything for anybody. He's living biblical values. He just doesn't realize it. Yeah. You know? And, you know, I, I don't really know what happened. I think I think God was just tugging his heart at the right time, and he was just ready. Well, like I said, this was 12-year conversation. <laughs> you know? Man, praise the Lord, brother. Blake, you got anything? No, yeah. not at this point. Okay. Um. Well, yeah, man, I think, I think that's... That's uh, it's important to understand that wherever you are, whatever your trade is, whatever, whatever the environment that you're in, you have a purpose in life. John is explaining to you what that purpose looks like, right? Um, your purpose is to be a light. And to to show others uh, an example of what a child of God looks like, and and that isn't necessarily beating them over the head with scripture, but like John said, they're watching what you're doing. And I think this is a hard concept for a lot of Christians to grasp because how many Christians do? I mean, I've run I've run into dozens, if not hundreds, of. Christians that just say, I'm praying, I'm asking Jesus in prayer to show me my purpose. And I'm like, he wrote you a book that tells you what your purpose in life is. And I was there. I mean, I I was there. Like, show me a sign. Give me this. Show me. Until you start obeying, that's when Mm. the growth happens. You got to be able to do the work. And be obedient, you know, and that's really what I was lacking. Dang, that's that's solid word right there, brother. Well, thank you all because you pushed me this way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, going back to what before we get off of that though, you know, that preaching Christianity to me pushed me away from Christianity at a young age. Yeah, and uh, I went, I I, I became. I was telling Paul this. I think I must have prayed the prayer when I was a kid 50 times because I always felt like I said it wrong, right? But I remember I went to a church camp. I was 13. And for the first time in my life, I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit. And I'll never forget it. Mm-hmm. 
And that was life-changing. And I came back. I got baptized. Everything was great. But I got involved with this church. Great church, you know. It was just, you know, kids being kids probably. But I distinctly remember feeling like, hey, you got you to gotta look like this. You got to act like this. You got to believe in this. And just myself by nature, when you tell me I got to do something, mm-hmm. I'm going to do the other way because I, I just don't. I don't like that. And I real and I learned that at a young age that I will never approach Jesus like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's kind of where I got like you can say and do whatever you want, I'm just going to live it out. And that's what I've tried to do. Yep. Well, that was going to be my next question. It's like I, I want to hear your testimony, man, because it's interesting to me um that you are so passionate about Christ in a in a real sense. I mean, I, I can tell it's genuine in your heart, and uh, you don't just you don't just get there um, willy nilly. Usually, mm-hmm. so you know, I wanted to hear your testimony, and that sounds like there's the beginning of it. And just walk me through your journey as a, as a son of Jesus Christ and, and kind of how you've been led up to this point that you are now uh, in your relationship with Jesus, man. Okay. But saddle up. It's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> no, what, so we, Hey man, we can split this into two episodes if we need to. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, you know, that's where I, that's where I was growing up and, uh, I, w- I was raised in a very, uh, God centered home. my, my mother, she's just an amazing Christian woman, super faithful. She always has been. Uh, my dad's side of the family, um, Catholic, but my dad has gone beyond Catholicism. You know, he's all about his personal relationship with Christ. So it's always been part of our family. Um, I have two sisters, same thing. Um, but so I was in high school and kind of just going through the motions, not really, not really on fire for Christ, but just, you know, just high school. Didn't really think much about much, but being 17 or whatever. And, uh, I had, a I had a mole on my arm and it was just kind of, I, I was kind of an insecure kid. So it just bothered me and I had it removed, went to the doctor, no big deal. Well, about three months later, that same mole came back. Went back to the doctor again. I think I was a senior in high school. They removed it again. And don't hear anything from the doctor. Don't think anything of it. So time goes on. I graduate high school. I moved to San Diego State. Uh, Once I got to San Diego State, I really kind of, uh, as far as grades go, I, I school came easy to me, but I was just making bad choices and uh, just really living for myself. Yeah. And um, I went to San Diego State for a year, just just partying, not living right. And uh, I ended up coming back to ASU. And that mole had come back. And now at this time, there was like, it looked like someone took a cigar and just put it out on my arm. So it was pretty nasty scar mm-hmm. with this, you know, big mole on it. Um, go back to ASU. I ended up joining a fraternity. I think I'm the only person 
that I know of that actually was part of a fraternity at Arizona State but didn't ever go to school. So that's just a notch. <laughs> on, that's just a notch on my belt. What uh, were you going to school for, by the way? Uh, honestly, I didn't really know. Uh, I th- actually I do. I mean, I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. Okay, that was the only thing I ever really wanted to do. But uh, I can. Re- I I love to teach, man. Yeah, especially I, kids, right? Well, I may be a teacher one day. When I get too old and decrepit to to run and stuff, I may go get my teaching degree and teach. Yeah, I could. I could. I, I, I that resonates with me. But I like yeah. that. So, so that's what I was doing, and and at that time, I I was on a a bad path. I mean, I was going downhill quick, and I was I think I was about yeah I was nineteen, just making horrible choices going nowhere good. And uh, I don't even think my parents really realized the depth of what that was. But so I came, I came back. My mom says, look, your arm's gross. We need to go to a plastic surgeon. Let's get it cleaned up. I said, all right. So I go to this plastic surgeon. He removes the mole, removes the scar, stitches it up. No big thing, right? I go back a week later or whatever it was. And uh, he sits me down. It was my 20th birthday. He sits me down. He says, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've got melanoma and you've had it a long time. So this could be nothing or this could kill you. He says, so what I want you to do, he says, where do your, where do your parents live? I told him, he says, I want you to drive to their house. I'm going to call you guys in an hour. Okay. So I go over there. He calls. He explains that I've got melanoma. I've had it a long time. We don't know how far it's gone, but it's a problem. So it says, what we got to do. And he, and he tells us right then again, there, like you're way too young for this. Somebody messed up. Like you should not be going through this right now. Yeah. He says, if, if I need to go to court, I will. So that's, we realize that someone dropped the ball. Well, on those first two times that that was removed, so that lo- should have been checked. Right. So looking back, those those initial biopsies, the lab te- or the, the the lab people said, "Look, it could be Spitz nevis, which is nothing, or it could be melanoma." But the fact of the matter is, you didn't do a very good job getting clear margins. So do it again. And both times it says that. And we were never told anything. Mm. We were just told we're good to go. Yeah. And you don't you don't think about that. Especially at that age, yeah, man. Like who's yeah. thinking about that? Well, and, and you probably don't want to push the issue if they're telling you almost no news is good news, right? Yeah. Like, exactly. I mean, so we didn't think anything of it. So what they said is, look, we got to see how far this thing is. So they go in. They do a white excision. So that that's what that big scar is. Yeah. So they took all this out and then they cut, they cut my nerve right here. They went in through my armpit and they took three lymph nodes. And then they said, okay, well, we feel good about your arm. We think we cleaned it out, but now things just kicked up a notch because it's in your lymph nodes. So now in 2000, you're pretty much dead. They don't have, they didn't have anything for melanoma. And Hmm. now it's in my blood stage four, you know, that's basically how it's presented to it's us. It's 20 years old. 20, yeah, 20 years old. So uh, 
We say, okay, so <laughs> what's next? So they go, all right, we're going to go back in. We're going to take 10 more lymph nodes and see if it's skipped lymph nodes, if it's traveled further, where it's at. So I go back in for surgery again. They take out 10 more lymph nodes, and that was it. They were all clean. So, okay. So now I got to get with an oncologist and see what do we do from here, right? So I get with this oncologist. He, uh, this man was in Time Magazine for one of the top oncologists in the world. How'd you get hooked up with this guy? I have no idea. I'm not sure. Huh. I was 20. I didn't really, you know, I wasn't involved in that stuff. Yeah. But so he says, this is bad. This is a bad situation. So he said, uh, we got a couple options. He said, really, the only thing we have right now is a drug called interferon. And uh, he said, interferon, it's a nasty drug. He said, basically, what you can expect from this drug is think about the worst flu you've ever had and inject that into you nightly. That's what you're going to feel. He said, the second thing that's bad about this is suicide. It causes people to kill themselves, and it's a real problem. So if you're going to take this drug, you automatically have to be on an antidepressant. And I go, oh, oh that's, that's awesome options. What's plan B? He says, all right, so we're going to send you down to U of A Cancer Medical Center. And, uh, you know, they're cutting-edge technology research, this, that, and the other. And we'll see what they tell you. I say, all right. So my mom, my dad, and I go down to U of A. And uh, this was probably one of the worst days of my life. So we sat down with them. They proceed to tell us that I basically could try drug, trial drug A. You could expect boils, uh, severe rashes, this, that, and the other. And it'll give you a 40% chance of living. And if you don't want to do that one, you can try drug B and you're going to cut, you know, just a, yeah. a rap sheet of side effects. So they gave me like three options, all experimental. And at the end, they say, and just so we're clear, you may or may not be getting these drugs. These might just be placebos because you're basically just a test rat. Holy smokes. Dang, and I have never, ever, I don't think in my whole life I have felt this defeated as I did from there. And I just remember driving back to Phoenix from that U of A cancer center. And we were just silent. My parents and I, I think really finally understood the magnitude of the situation. So we came back, get with my oncologist and say, well, we're not doing that. So I guess we'll do the interferon. So where's the cancer at in your body at this point? Because you said they took the 10 lymph nodes out. So it started, that mole was right here on my yeah. arm. And melanoma is the slowest moving cancer there is. At least that's what they told me. Okay. So the fact that it started here, it should have been just like so many people get melanomas removed. There's no issue, right? Yeah. Well, that's what it should have been. But because of the fact it got missed, it had been traveling for three years and it came all the way and got into my lymph, my lymph system. So once it gets into your blood, now you got a problem. Okay. Now it's stage four. But with that being said, I also believe that this, is, this was a huge um, part of my success was that I believe back then that God used cancer to pull me out of a bad situation. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that had I not got cancer, uh, who knows? I mean, I was, I was headed on that trajectory. 
So you go back to this doc and, and the original oncologist that you saw that offered you this medication, and at least you know this one he's offering you couldn't potentially be a placebo, right. and you're just dying while you're taking it, right? Um, and, and you're not actually even taking a real medication. Obviously, that's the route I would have gone to. Right. Were, were you physically, were you feeling any side effects from this cancer, like... The cancer, no, I had no. no, I had no clue. So you would have not even, you wouldn't, you you didn't even know you had it. No clue. If they wouldn't have told you, right? Correct. I had no clue. So that makes it even harder yeah. to then go and take this medication that's going to make you feel well. And that's the and that's the whole deal. That it's it's all presented off fear, right? It's all it's all fear pushed, and it's all numbers. Like we feel good about the surgery, but if you take this, you've got a sixty percent chance of surviving. And if you don't take this, then you only have a 30% chance. So they run these numbers and it's just kind of like, what the heck are you supposed to do? I mean, you at least for me, I, I did whatever I had to do because you're trying to live, right? So, I mean, I didn't really feel like there was a choice there. There wasn't much to talk about. I just knew I wasn't going to be a lab rat. And yeah. That's, that's the way they made me feel. So what did you decide? So we started the uh, interferon and... uh how it worked was I would go into a room about eh, about twice this size and there would be people all getting chemotherapy injections. Granted, I was the youngest one by far, um, but I would go five days a week and they would uh, put an IV in and it would take about three hours if I remember right. And they'd inject that in and I would go home. And then when I went home, it was like massive migraines, um, 105 temperature. I hit that numerous times on average. It was about 103, 104 temperature, body aches, uh, throwing up, diarrhea, you name it. Gosh, like I say, dog, man. the worst flu you've ever had, do that every day. Every day. So I did that. I did that for, I, I believe it was six weeks. And Gosh. on top of it, like I said, you had to be on an antidepressant to do it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I remember there was a nurse at one point where they were in doing these injections and she says, how are you doing with interferon? I'm like, What's this is what it is. Be? I mean, it's not good. And she said, my, uh, my boyfriend was on that. And I go, really? And he, and this was the only person I knew that had been on it. Cause this is not a normal drug. Yeah. And, uh, I go, well, how's he doing? And she goes, he just killed himself here. I'm on the drug. What the crap, nurse? What the crap, man? I think she was, you know, I, I don't remember having any bad, I don't get a bad thing from it, but. Okay. I just, uh, I, think, like she, a good I think she thing. was probably grieving too, you know? I yeah. Mean, it wasn't like that, but it was also like, man, this is real, you know? So I went through six weeks of that, and then. Uh, Were you struggling with any any suicidal thoughts or any, I'll I get, mean. I'll get there. Okay, all right. So. So then, um, mind you, I'm, I'm 20 during this time yeah. and I, I'm still trying to live a life as a 20 year old with my friends. I had an apartment and so once, once those six week injections were done, what they would do is they sent me home with needles and the medicine and I would inject myself every three days. And that first night of the injection was exactly what I said before. Massive headache, throwing up, high fever. It was the same every time. The second day would be like a little better. The third day would be like a little better. 
but then it was back right at it. Yeah. So it, it, it never went away. It was just a constant cycle to the point where I forgot what I felt like. Like I forgot what it felt like to feel good. Yeah. Yeah. But during that time I was living in an apartment, still doing these injections. Mind you, all my friends were still in college and they were doing their thing here. I'm just struggling along. It was really stupid looking back, but there was a, there was a time that we were all hanging out around the pool and I'm all jacked up on chemo, you know? And, uh, I walked home and I'm from Arizona, so it gets hot. Well, so does the ground, asphalt, concrete, it all gets smoking hot. And I was walking back to my apartment on the third story and I passed out on the stairs and I hit my face on the stairs and it actually burned the whole side of my face because it was so hot. And I don't remember if that was kind of the change, but I remember leaving after that. Like I went home, I went to my yeah, parents Yeah. because I just couldn't. I couldn't maintain that lifestyle and do what I was doing. Yeah. So I went home. Um, I'm taking the, I'm taking the injections. The protocol for the interferon was uh, 12 months is what they wanted to do for a year. So I'm taking the injections. Well, it kind of got bad and uh, I mean, it was good and bad. So, I got, I started about probably 180, 185 was kind of my walk around rate. I got down to, I think the lowest on interferon I hit was like 132. Dang. So I lost a ton of weight. Um, I wasn't sleeping. Um, I had been taking Paxil, which is a nasty drug, I think. Um, and on top of it, I felt mentally like I was strong. So I felt like I could take more than they're telling me. So I was taking more than they told me to take and they never adjusted it for the weight I lost. So I was probably taking way too much, you know? Yeah. And I just had that mindset, like, I'm tough. I can deal with it. It'll, it'll be better. Well, what ended up happening was I, I kind of went, I didn't kind of, I went into this like full blown manic state and, uh, I don't remember a lot of it, but I do remember I had some pretty awesome things happen in that state of mind. And uh, one night I was laying in my, at my parents' house. They had a, they had a guest house and that was where I stayed. And I was laying there and I just, I remember feeling for the first time, I questioned God. I said, are you even real? I don't even, you know, I, I think you just hung me out to dry. I don't, I don't even know if you're real anymore. And I'm laying there and I said, if you're so real, prove it to me. And I know, I know you're not supposed to do that, but I was in a bad spot. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I just remember something kind of cheesy, like my feet went numb or something like that. And I was like, really, you think that's going to believe you? I said, prove to me you're real. And I swear to you with everything that I am and my truth that out of nowhere, I get just this piercing pain in my wrist that had me buckled back in my bed like someone was piercing my wrist to huh. a cross. And that lasted probably about 20, 30 seconds. And then it released. And I just said, I'll never question you again. Huh. And that was, that <clears throat> I will be, that was one of the greatest moments of my life. Dang, man. 
Yeah. And after that, and, and granted, you know, I went into the hospital. They thought I was bipolar, all this stuff. But during that time, too, I could remember getting in my Jeep and just going for drives. And I would just connect with people. And I would stop, talk to people. And I, I believe that Holy Spirit was with me during those conversations and telling people whatever they needed to hear. Mm-hmm. But they ended up putting me in a hospital and I went through a whole bunch of stuff and um, they ended up pulling me off of the drugs that it was just having too many negative effects. Yeah. And so you talk, it's interesting to me that you, uh, I'd like to hear more about like that. You said you went into a full blown manic state. You wind up in a hospital. Like what does that look like? But but also having this ability within that state or that mindset to even question God and then to receive the input that he gives you, the sign that he gives you, and then you're going out, you're connecting with people. Like, that. this is a strange dynamic here, yeah. man. Yeah. What, I mean, we hear, what is the other yeah. side of it? When, I mean, the other side of it is that I was crazy. I mean... Um, if you if you ask some maybe some friends around me, I mean I lost a lot of friends during that time, but my mom or what it looked like to them, it looked like I was nuts. But to me, it was real, and it'll be real till the day I die, you know. And I I talked to uh, my pastor about it. Was it just said, a twisted view of reality, or I mean, describe that to well, me? He just you know like I just I I've, I've really felt. Like I was walking side by side with Jesus. I really do. Huh. And, and, uh, like he said, he goes, look, maybe, maybe these drugs and everything you got going on, maybe it just opened up that channel of communication, you know, regardless of the fact it's real to me. Yeah. And, uh, I mean that, that moment in my bed was one of the, greatest moments of my life yeah and i and i i believe it no one will ever convince me otherwise so how did you wind up back in the hospital and then them making the determination to take you off the medication my my, um my behaviors i think just got so all over the place i guess i i went and spent some money i shouldn't have spent and you know i think my parents were probably just scared and it's just i wasn't in a good place you know yeah, like I say, and, and a lot of that came down to Paxil. You know, it seems like, it seems like everything I did would be like maybe a three percent chance that you could get these side effects. Well, I got them all. And what is Paxil? It's an antidepressant. Okay. And in order to take interferon, you had to be on an antidepressant. So. Yeah. You know, it could have it could have been that. You know that it causes that that manic behavior, just that impulsive behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it could have just been that, but I think it was a lot of it. I think it was, like I said, a lot of weight loss, too much chemo, yeah, not enough sleep, all that. Well, I'm still, and I feel like you're holding something back on me because I'm still trying to grasp this picture of feeling, of of having the feeling that you're walking side by side with Jesus. That's an interesting Um statement but you know you you would think 
that the that that would produce good results, not results that would wind you up. Like you, if you had that feeling that you were walking side by side with Jesus, and like you said, it's is not even a feeling to you. You're saying you can't convince me that this wasn't the reality. You would think that would produce good results and 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 portray good things. So what was there? Was there? You know, I think you're very passionate about the spiritual warfare side of things. Was there conflict? Was there was there something? Was there some other more of a sinister or evil influence producing the 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 negative? I I don't I don't think there I don't think so. I I think that my reality was just not everybody else's reality. Like my I felt I almost felt um, looking back just out-of-body experience what i was seeing and feeling nobody else saw and felt like it just huh i think there were good things i can remember having conversations with people um and they just be bawling i don't know these people <laughs> and that's really? why i say you you won't convince me otherwise wow man but from an outside perspective looking in i mean they thought you look like they a crazy I was man. bipolar yeah they yeah. tested me for being bipolar. So, and how long did that last? Honestly, I'm not sure because that that time was so hazy. Was it like a like a year or no, like no, no, months? No, no. Or? no, just probably. It was. I bet it was probably like a, a progressive month. Okay. Okay. And then, like I said, they they pulled me off because they just said you're having too many complications. I've, so. Yeah, I've never, I, I've never heard a story like this. I'm. This is, this is very interesting to me. And so, when they pulled you off the medications, how did that affect this you? Yeah. So you know. So they pulled me off, and at the time, I, I think I made it about six months. And like I said, the protocol was a year. And uh, they took me off. The plan was to uh, take some time off. Get some bearings underneath you. We'll talk about it. So I took that time off, and I basically just told my oncologist, I'm done. I ain't doing it anymore. Not going to happen. I said, uh, I'm good with wherever we're at. So I went, and I got a job. I did the training. So about a month had went by with nothing. And I just remember getting this overwhelming fear that I'm not doing enough, that I'm quitting too early. So as soon as I got the job, I quit the job. And I called the oncologist and I said, all right, I'm coming back. Let's do this thing. So I went back in. We started where we left off. But this time they put me on a drug or a antidepressant called Zoloft. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what was worse. The Paxil was real manic. The Zoloft made me feel really not like myself. I just remember smiling a lot. Thinking as I'm smiling, why the heck are you smiling? And that's a bad feeling, you know, just to feel that detached from yourself. Yeah, that's yeah. the way it made me feel. So I don't really remember anything too eventful. I just kind of remember just a slow progression of just not not in a good direction. So I was living with my mom, my parents at this time again, and I did it for about another three months, and. uh same side effects from the chemo? 
Yeah, same side effects as far as the flu symptoms, yeah. all that. that. All that never went away. I mean, Back that was into always that. there. Uh, I wasn't having the the manic stuff, but I thought that I had told my mom that I was just going to take my Jeep and smash it into a wall. That's how I remember it. But I was just talking to her leading up to this, and she actually told me, which this, you know, it's kind of hard to hear, but she, I actually asked her to kill me. I asked her to take me out, and I was mm-hmm. done. And when I asked her that, they pulled me off. And they said, "You're you're done. We're not we're not doing this anymore." And uh, so that was that. That was nine. I ended up doing it nine months. That was that. Do you? So you don't remember asking her to I do don't. that? Do you? I don't. Man, holy smokes, dude! Yeah. So it's a nasty drug. Gosh, dog, man. I mean, it, it, in a different way, reminds me of the conversation we had about the people. I know you were taking these drugs because they were required, but we had the conversation on the podcast about the people that take these drugs in order to try to get those, essentially, side effects that you had, but in a different way, you know, like the kind of mind-altering drugs, and that was a side effect that you got from taking that, but it, it, I almost think of it like, you know, you had that connection with Jesus through that because, like, at that point, everything kind of was stripped away from you, right? Like, it was kind of life or death, and you're at this point, and now you're just thinking, well, I mean, I feel like crap. I've got this cancer. I might die. Who knows? I'm taking this drug and all of this, and God is just able to reveal himself to you because you're in that state almost. You and that's know? kind of, that's like what my pastor was saying. You know, that's kind of what he was saying. Yeah. You take maybe, all that outside influence away, you strip it all away. Yeah. And then that's all your, that's what's plugging up your filter. Yeah. You know, it's almost like when you go out in a much, much smaller scale, you go out for a run and, you know, like the run gets hard or whatever. And then really none of the other stuff that's going on in the world matters. Like what you talk about at mid state, like it's just yeah. one foot in front of the other. That's, that's really all that matters. And this was just a life scenario of that on a much grander scale. Yeah. Well, you made this statement earlier, John, that this, this kind of, uh, obviously this changed the trajectory of your life yeah. in a big way. Um, you come to your mom and you ask her to take you out. Good gosh, man. I can't imagine how she reacted to that. I oh mean, yeah. I mean, my, my, my parents, I, the whole time, this whole story is for me personally, I, I never really felt, I never really felt like I was going to die. You know, like how you talk about, you cannot die. I believe so much that whatever happened to me, God had me. It was what he. It was what it is. No kidding. So you felt that peace I never, throughout I all never, this. I never really felt like I was gonna die. Wow. Well, I don't know. Maybe I probably had moments where I felt I was gonna die, but it didn't bother me. I was good with it. It was what it was. No kidding, man. Yeah, and so I didn't really stress on that. You know, I I did what I had to do. This yeah. is this is the hand you dealt me, so I'm gonna do it. But I also never. Walled around in pity about it. Yeah. I just did it. So after this interaction with your mom, 
And she, and, and then obviously, I, well, I guess, did she raise the flag and like, yeah. and then so they're like, all right, yeah. we, we got to take you off this stuff because it's just it, not working. It's not working. Right. Like, uh, what I got, I got to know, what's it look like after that? I mean, so after that, um, I never really, I never got back into school after that. I just, I tried, but I was just wasting money and effort. I just, I could never get back into college. So, um, I ended up going to work for my dad full time, building homes. How fast do you recover mentally? Like how fast do you, cause like you said, when you approached your mom and you asked her that question, you, you, it's life was so hazy. The I, reality yeah. was so warped at that time. You don't even remember that. Like how long did it take before you came back to where you were feeling like John again and no, you were back I, in control? I don't, you know, I don't really remember. It was that hazy. Yeah. That I don't, I'm not real sure. But eventually you worked it, yourself I, I back it, into that. Yeah, one. I think it came back pretty quick. Okay. I, I don't remember it being well, it's almost too like big. Of you a didn't get that way yourself. The drug made you think that way. And it's like you take yeah. the drug away and you kind of get your, yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Your mind back. Yeah. yeah it's, a ba- it's a bad feeling. That's one of the worst feelings I had of this whole thing because this happened numerous times where you really feel disconnected from yourself. And that thought of like, who am I? Like, truly, who am I? Is a bad thought. That's scary, man. Yeah, and I got there a few times. But that came back pretty quick after coming off the drug. It wasn't yeah. like a two or three long year-long no, 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 process no. where you're like trying no. to sort things out. Yeah. Man, that's wild. Yeah. It's almost like you take the uh, the jumper cable off the battery, and it's like you quit taking the drug, and the cable goes right back on, and you kind of got power yeah, well, again. I you mean, know? that's a testament to God's creation. Our yeah. bodies are perfect. Yeah. They will heal themselves. Yeah. I believe that. So how, now, now you come out of this and you, you say you go back to work with, well, you don't get back in school. You go, you start working with your dad, right? Mm-hmm. You start feeling like John again. Um, Where are you at in your relationship with Christ at this point? Like how how did this I'm a, I'm whole a, experience? I'm in a good place. Okay. Uh, I I mean I think I still chose to make bad decisions, but I was in a good place. I I went on a missions trip to Africa to uh, build some stuff, and that was an amazing experience. I I feel like it was a lot of ups and downs, you know, but overall, that I mean, since that night I had that experience. I, I never questioned God again. I mean, I did stupid things. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was sold out for Jesus, and I I have been since. Um, so, so I go back to work, and I'm healthy for about two and a half years, I believe. And all of a sudden, I start losing a bunch of weight, and there's no real reason for it. So... I went to a doctor, and I was pretty ignorant at this time. I didn't, you know, when I got done with the first one, I didn't really think it'd ever come back. I thought it was done. So I went to a couple different doctors, got some pretty ignorant responses to what was going on. Uh, but eventually, I couldn't even conversate without coughing. I, I couldn't breathe. And it just was continuous coughing, continuous coughing. And I'm dropping weight, like, quick. So I finally go back to my oncologist and uh, they do a 
chest x-ray. Well, and I had had chest x-rays done, mm-hmm. and other doctors missed this somehow. But I get to him. They do whatever tests they did. Come to find out, I have a tumor the size of like an old flip phone, like an old flip cell phone, and it's right next to my heart and my wind passage. That's a big tumor. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah. that's why I can't talk because it's actually closing my windpipe, and I'm Good choking. gosh, man. So so I go to my oncologist. Hold on. Let's take a break. All Let's right. take a break. This episode of the 3 of 7 podcast is brought to you by Exoskin. Hey, man, Exoskin, it's, it's fitness apparel, right? Socks, shorts, shirts, arm sleeves, beanies. They've got a whole lineup. They can cover you from head to toe. I've been using Exoskin now for probably three years. And look, I use their products ex- exclusively for ultra running, for training, everything that I do. I will only put Exoskin socks on my feet. Uh, I prefer their toe socks. They are hands down the best on the market. Everything that they make is American made. And the technology behind the fabrics that they use is second to none. They've actually designed fabrics that channel moisture and sweat away from your skin that help prevent chafing, helps prevent discomfort. These things are amazing. Everything from head to toe. I love the compression shorts, the short ones. The only good-looking thing on me, really, in my opinion, is my legs. So I always get the short shorts so I can show off my quads a little bit. Um, It's never failed me. So I want you guys to just... Give Exoskin a try. Look, you get what you pay for. This is a company that stands behind their products because they know that they work and they've been tested out on the battlefield of life. The website is exoskin.us. That's X-O-S-K-I-N dot U-S. Give them a follow on Instagram at exoskin.usa. I'll attach the website, the show notes, and the pro code that they give to us as three of seven podcast listeners. Yeah, we get a discount on all their stuff. So, Exoskin, thanks for always supporting me from day one of my journey as an ultra runner. Thanks for pouring into creating the best products on the market. And thank you for supporting the three of seven podcast since the beginning. All right, guys, we're back. Uh, it's, dude, we just found out that John's headphones were turned pretty much off this the entire first half of our conversation here. So No, they were definitely off. How's it sound now, John? A lot different. <laughs> <laughs> he, just, he was basically just wearing these things over his ears. They were earmuffs. Yeah. Earmuffs, yeah, that's right. So this is the way these things are supposed to sound. Um Anyways, okay, man, this thing just keeps coming. Uh, two years, you say about two years. You're 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 clear. You go get a. You start dropping all this weight. You get to where you can't have a conversation without coughing, and you go get a chest X-ray, which had been done prior. They hadn't seen anything, but luckily now they catch a tumor the size of a cell phone, old flip phone next to your heart and your windpipe. What in the world, dude? 
Yeah, so what is the what goes through your head when you get that news? I, I I don't remember again, I don't remember being real afraid. It was what it was. And uh so we go back to the doctor and the doctor says, This is bad. He goes, uh this is real bad. Um, they basically gave me, they didn't basically, they gave me a 5% chance of living through this. So 5%, that ain't good, brother. Yeah, no, it ain't good. So they find the tumor and, uh, he says, all right, we need to, we need to biopsy this thing. Uh, so what they do is I went in, they laid me down and they went in through my back to take a biopsy of this tumor to make sure that it was in fact melanoma. Well, during that biopsy, they punctured my lung, and I went home, and I couldn't breathe. So then, of course, I go back to the hospital, and they're like, oh, man, we punctured your lung. Gosh. And like I say, it was, just, it was just common. It was like anything that could go wrong went wrong. And uh, so I remember being in the hospital, and they put this little, uh, I don't know if it was like a relief thing, or it was, I think it drained the fluid out of your lung is what it was. And it went right through your rib. And I well, have a chest tube. I have never, I don't know if that was installed wrong or what, but I have never, ever experienced pain like that thing caused me. Oh, yeah. I was on a morphine drip. I just remember for like two or three days, whatever it was, I just sat there hitting that thing. I didn't sleep, nothing. And as soon as they pulled that thing out, it just like I just collapsed. Like I, I have never experienced pain like that thing. Yeah. So I remember having a chest tube in after my heart surgery. Same deal. I crap freaking hurts, dude. Yeah, it hurt. well, it it's hurt. a tube going into your chest cavity. Yeah. Yeah. So makes sense that it hurts, but Okay, so my This was just from the biopsy this though. This is just the biopsy. This is after they told me I'm gonna die, then they puncture my lung. So <laughs> I go in. Sorry about that. Yeah. Hey, sorry about your luck, bud. Yeah. Um so I go back in and he's like, this is bad. This is bad. This is real bad. Well, at the time, my sister found an oncologist and I'm just, I mean, I'm sorry, a naturopathic doctor. And I'll just refer to him as Jake. And uh, this man is amazing. Like the smartest man I've ever met. And luckily, my oncologist and the naturopath decided to work together. And what Jake believed was, it's not, the answer isn't just naturopathic medicines and it's not just chemotherapy. It's the fact of the two working together is where the secret is. And, and I like to explain chemotherapy like this. If I, if I take a steak and I hit it in the mud and that steak drops in the mud and I hit it again, it goes further and further. Eventually that steak's going to be buried. So what, what he thought and what they looked at was, yeah, you hit it with the chemo, right? But then I'm going to pull you back up and I'm going to hit it and I'm going to pull you back up. So you're you're trying to keep some level of healthiness to your body, right? Yeah. So that was a huge blessing that these two guys came together. But so I go to my oncologist. This is kind of working out the plan of attack on this thing because they can't do surgery. It's too close to my heart. They can't do nothing. They say, "Okay, we're going to we're going to hammer this thing with chemotherapy." And uh, what the plan was, was they were going to put me in a hospital. They were going to hit me with five different chemotherapies. 
for five days straight. And then I would get out of um, the hospital. I would rest for a week and recover. And then I would go to Jake for two weeks. Okay. So the chemotherapy, he starts telling me what to expect from the chemotherapy. He starts breaking down all these drugs. I don't even remember what the side effects were. It was like kidney failure, lung failure, everything's failing. It's essentially poison, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he gives me this rap sheet of what to expect, and I looked at him, and I go, hey, listen, man, it sure seems like you're trying to kill this tumor without killing me. And he looks me square in the face, and he says, that's exactly what I'm doing. And he was, like I said, he was in Time Magazine uh, 30 years in the field. He said, this is the worst prescription of chemotherapy I have ever given anybody. But you got to okay. you got to pull out all the stops when you ain't got but a five percent chance, right? I mean, they it, they just wipe your whole body clean. You got nothing. You got zero across the board. Zero Immune wipe system. Blood to, nothing, yeah, nothing. You just wiped out. So that was that was uh, his side of it. Jake's side of it was vitamins, nutrition. This is when I started to really learn about like it, what you're inputting into your body, the effects of it. You know, and so what we were going to do with him was the nutrition and then also uh, these vitamin C therapies. Have you ever heard of I've these? I've heard of that. The, uh, the Gershon. So they're pretty cool. So how they work is um, I would go in and I would get a, a vitamin C therapy. It was 10,000 milligrams of vitamin C, way more than you could ingest because you just get sick. Well, a vitamin C cell, when it's ingested into your blood, looks exactly like a sugar cell. Well, sugar cell, all your cells see sugar like kid in a candy store, right? It just takes it all in, takes it all in. Well, what happens when a sugar cell is ingested into your normal cells, it turns into hydrogen peroxide. And just like you get a cut on your leg and you pour hydrogen peroxide, it bubbles up. Yeah. It does the same thing. But your healthy cells, they're strong and they can digest it, get rid of it, doesn't harm it. Your cancer cells are actually weak. So what it ends up doing is uh, breaking the cell membrane or killing the nucleus, either way, dead cell. So the idea was hit it with the chemo, build you back up, get rid of anything little with the vitamin Cs. Mm -hmm. That was the plan. So I had to get a port for all this. So I had a port put in, and that thing was horrible. Just anything like just uh, not part of your body being like that, it's just such a terrible feeling. And it went straight to my jugular. So the chemo is just plugged right into my chest. So, okay, all right, here we go. So I go in for the first one, just an absolute disaster. Like way more than you could even imagine. I I, I describe it as like a exorcism sick. You know the movie mm-hmm. where she's just like projecting vomiting? Mm-hmm. That's the sickness for where it was. Mm. And like I said, my poor mother was there the whole time through all of this. She's just a saint, but... So they, one of the drugs was called interleukin and it was a little bag about like this. And it was on day five. The nurses wouldn't even touch the bag that the chemotherapy was in. They had these big rubber hazmat gloves and they would hang that bag. And I would get four drops of that per hour for 24 hours. And as soon as that drug hit my body lights out, I don't remember anything. All I remember was waking up 
and get me the heck out of this hospital. And that, they, they, the nurses actually called that the devil's drip. That was their name for it. Would you pass out? or, or? I just don't remember anything at that yeah. point. It just was that violently Holy sick. Holy smokes, man. Yeah. So I get through the first uh, round of chemo. I rest for a week, and I go to Jake for now his protocol, our plan. And I go in there. I think I was 24, 25 at the time. And I went in there just bawling. And I said, dude, I'll die. I ain't doing this. Not going to happen. Not worth it. You're not going back to the chemo. I, I am doing it again. Yeah. And he's just, like I said, just an amazing man. I just can't say enough about this guy. But Now, by the way, why can't you reveal his actual identity? I don't know. Can I? Is that cool? I reached out to him. I never heard to him. Well, I, I, he goes, I, he goes by Jake. His name's Dr. Jonathan Pasenka. And like I say, his, first of all, you got to understand when you're with this, this whole cancer world, you're pretty much just a cow and you get pushed around. No, you know, there's no real person to person. There's no, nobody cares. It seems like. Yeah. So for him just to be like a breath of fresh air and, and just have that, the backing that he brought to me was huge. And how did you guys find him? I mean, I my know your si sister. My sister found him online. And okay. I, I, we had known another lady that was going through breast cancer, and she was doing naturopath only. And um, she was talking about this clinic. Well, he had learned from the clinic. Somehow we just found him. Okay. Was he local? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he, lived, he lived in Scottsdale. So I went into Jake bawling, and I said, dude, I'll die. I don't care. We're not doing this. And he coached me up. He says, no, you're fine. You're strong. You can do this. You built me up. He goes, I'm going to, I'll pull you out of this. You're, you're going to do it. You're going to be fine. So he coached me out of it. And I do the therapies and uh, on we go. So did I mention it was four months? Did I mention that? I don't think you mentioned that. So it was four months. The, the plan was four months to do this four months okay. and then reevaluate what the tumor is doing, how it's reacting. And what were you doing with Jake? I mean, how did the vitamin C stuff go? How did the, was, was he strict diet? I mean, how, what were you doing with him? Yeah, it was, um, that's two weeks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two weeks. Yeah. Total change of diet. I mean, we had a big awakening to, I mean, it's, it's just so messed up looking back, like going back to the interferon, I'd be in a room with 10 other people getting chemotherapy and they'd be handing out popsicles and, and cookies to make you feel better. Yeah, yeah. How messed up is that? Yeah. Knowing what I know now. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? You know, so I learned a lot. So the diet changed. I was on a whole rap sheet of supplements. And the vitamin C, you know, I, was it working? I don't know. But the fact of the matter was is I really loved that guy. Mm -hmm. And he helped me get through it, you know, build me up through that. Mm -hmm. So... I go back to the hospital, second time goes. I don't remember anything too eventful. Um, I'm just getting weak. and I mean, I'm basically dead man walking. Like I looked like I was dead. I got down to 126 pounds on that. So that's, you know, dropping 50 pounds is quite a bit of weight. Yeah. So I go to the third one. You know, at this at this time, I'm bald. I'm just, I'm just a mess. It just feels terrible. Any evidence that it's working? 
nobody checked. I mean, you don't check. Oh, okay. It's just, it's just this was the protocol. You're going to do it, and we'll evaluate. You know? Okay. So uh, third time I go in, same thing, get through it, get out of the hospital. I go home, but this time I'm recovering, and I'm starting just to puke up blood. And I mean a lot of blood. It wasn't a little bit. It was scary. So immediately we, and I, and I live about an hour away, an hour and 15 minutes from the hospital. So, and at the time I'm living with my parents now, like 24, 25, but I can't even function. Like I have to have them there. Um, we haul, we haul butt down to the hospital and I'm dying in that car that night. I know for a fact I was dying. I could feel it. Like I said, I said my goodbyes to my parents and it was, uh, my dad was just flying and we get to the hospital and this is coming from my mom. Cause I don't remember this at all. She said the emergency room was just packed, like not an empty chair in the whole place. And she said that there was this old man that worked at the hospital that just, he seemed really out of place, just an old, like real sweet man. And he took one look at us and immediately put me in a wheelchair and immediately bypassed everyone and took me back. And we never saw him again. And she believes that that old man was an angel mm-hmm. that happened. Because I was dying. I, I, I believe with my whole heart I was dying. Mm-hmm. Come to find out, I got staph infection in the last go around in the hospital. And mind you, I have zero immune system. Yeah. Like no white blood cells whatsoever. So I'm back in the hospital for a week and uh, I had like a week full of just IV um, antibiotics and I get better and they release me. I go on my way, go with Jake. Um, I don't remember a whole lot again with the fourth one, but I I do want to say this is also during this time, you know, I lost a lot of friends and it it's, it's really not to anybody's I'm not, I'm not mad at anybody. I mean, we're all, we are pretty young people and they just don't know how to handle it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But this, during this time that this was going on, my wife, we were friends at the time, but she was like one of the only people that really went out of her way. Like she would draw, she would send me a, I remember, I'll never forget. She drove me a, a picture of a monkey and all it said was just hang in there. Mm-hmm. Right. But here's this girl that I don't even really know that well. And she's taking time for me, and it was just incredible just to have that support. Where did you, where and when did you meet her for the first time? Like, like, I life? met her like two years before that, but at the time I had a girlfriend who was just a horrible person, but I was young and we just weren't really in the right place. Yeah. But I, I had known her, but you know, we, I think we went on a couple dates, but that was it. And, uh, but she was reaching out to me, and it was just, you know, it was. It meant a lot at that time because really, well, I bet it did. There wasn't a lot outside of my family and those people. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of that, you know. And she took time for that, so I think it's important. But so I go through the fourth one um, again. I don't. I don't remember much. I just remember getting through it, and uh, I go back to the doctor. I have some tests done, you know, CAT scans, PET scans. I've had more of those, and you can. Who knows how many of those I've had. So I go back in to see what the results say. Where do we go from here? Because that was the plan. Where do we go from here? And I go in there, 
And he says, John, I don't have any scientific explanation for what I'm going to tell you. I've never seen anything like this in my career, but your cancer has gone. I go, what? Huh? He goes, it's gone. He goes, you got a wadded up piece of scar tissue in your chest. That's it. And that moment was almost like that moment in my bed where it was like, I got you. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And I, I tell people, I took the medical field. They look at my rap sheet and they're like blown away. I'm alive. Just, when, dude, what, I mean, what was your reaction to that news? I mean, um, that's big news. What's funny is I, I had a tattoo appointment at the time. <laughs> and, uh, when I, when I felt that I just, uh, I called my pastor friend. I was like, dude, this just happened. And I changed my tattoo and I got tattooed and celebrated. I just like, I mean, what do you do? I, I've truly felt <laughs> God touch me and heal me from an unhealable thing. So, um, and, and mind you, during this time, I had a huge prayer group. My sister's community is massive. Um, I bet you I had, oh, who knows, 20,000, 30,000 people. I really believe there was that many people praying for me. My family was super supportive. Um, so I had a lot of people backing me up, but it truly, God truly touched me and healed me. Through, through this process, did you have the capacity to pray yourself? I'm sure I did. I, I just, it was so intense. I just don't remember a lot of it. You know, I, yeah, there's just no real clarity during that time. Mm -hmm. I know there were, I know there were still times of doubts. Like my mom told me during that time that, you know, I, I would tell her that God forgot me, you know, that I felt like I was on my own. So I think there was still that struggle, but you know, I, I would like to think that, yeah, I still had a relationship. I mean, I, I always have, you, but you were, I mean, you were at a point, it sounds like you were so, you were so beat down mm -hmm. that you were relying heavily on the body of Christ. Oh yeah. That were, were, they were essentially making intercession for you on your behalf. Yeah. Um, and how did your family react to this um, freaking awesome, like, unbelievable miracle? Oh, I mean, what do, you, what do you say? I mean, there's no explanation. Did you just go up to them and be like, hey, my cancer's gone? Or like, Yeah. I mean, pretty <laughs> much, yeah. Like, like I say, there's no, there's no explanation. Like, how much better of a testimony can you get? Did you believe it? Like, if I'm putting myself in that situation, I'm like, all right, yeah, you yeah. told me that, but I leave. and I'm, Show it, me the picture. There's still no. something that's like, them juggers have messed up enough on me. <laughs> no, I don't know I, about this. I, I can tell you, man. I, you just, you I, just I never, felt it. I never was afraid. Yeah. So when they told me that, I just was like, of course it is. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? It's just, I don't know. I just. That seems like typical John fashion. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. It was awesome, man. I mean, what? So, so we get through that. You have no cancer. God is good, and they uh, they said, "Look, we still want you to go through uh, radiation just to make sure there's nothing going on." 
And I'm like, yeah, whatever. Radiate me all you want. I'm good. So I got pinpoint radiation. I think it was like six or eight weeks. And uh, that wasn't, I mean, it, it, it messed my throat up from the radiation. I had a hard time eating, but I mean, compared to what I just came up off, I mean, it didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. I felt like nothing. So I healed up. It took a while to heal from that. Um, at that time, my wife being who she was during that time, it really made me like, what are you doing? Like here you have this amazing woman, like, what are you doing? So we started dating and after that too, they, you know, I wasn't supposed to have kids. They told me absolutely hundred percent. You'll never have kids. It's not going to happen. This chemo is going to wipe you clean. Yeah. So I took, I took the steps to, you know, save some specimens and whatever in case I ever wanted it. But, um, yeah. So my, my wife, when we got married, um, I took on two kids and we started dating and it got serious. I got married she uh she ended up getting pregnant which was not supposed to happen another miracle in my life mm -hmm. benjamin was never supposed to be and uh life was good i mean i i just had a young family things were moving forward god pulled me out of this horrible place i was in and now we're living for jesus save me on we go well about two and a half years later Everything's going good, and I start getting this pain in my stomach, like a real sharp pain. And I, I just distinctly remember I was at work, and it felt like someone stabbed me in the stomach, and it dropped me to the ground. It buckled my knees. And I didn't mess around this time. I went straight back to the doctor. They did their test, and again, my doctor says, man, I've seen this. I've heard of this three, two times in my career, and you're the third but you have a tumor in your small intestine. He goes, this doesn't happen normally. And I go, okay. So I just got married. My wife's pregnant. I got a baby on the way. I got two beautiful kids. Life's good. And for the first time in this whole process, I was pissed. And I straight up said like, what's your problem, God? We've been yeah. through this. Yeah. You I've learned my lessons. Why am I here again? And I was mad. And uh it didn't last long. I got over it, but I was I was mad. So back we go to the oncologist and all that and get a plan. And this was the first time that they could actually do surgery. So it was good. So I had surgery. They went in. They cut 11 inches out of my small intestine, put me back together, told me I could have all these complications just from that. Um, I get through it. Thank God I've had no complications with it. Um, and then again, they say, okay, well, what now? You know, what are we going to do now? So what they came up with is they wanted me to do two and a half years. I'm sorry, three years of a low dose white blood cell booster. And they said, the effects of this is pretty minor. You're going to be sore. Might be a little irritated, but pretty minor. I said, all right, well, that's what I did. The problem with that was they gave me a 
unlimited supply of Percocet, a mm-hmm. hundred at a time, unlimited refills. And that first, it this really saddens me because this time of my life, I don't remember much. And looking back, I was just in a fog. You know, I don't remember being in a good place. I don't really remember being in a bad place. I just don't really remember it. Yeah. But those pills became a problem. And that's all it was, was I was just running through these pills. And looking back, it's like, man, how do you give someone just an unlimited supply? And it was literally like that. I could run out and go fill it, run out, go fill it. Mm -hmm. There was no nothing, no monitoring that. When did you recognize that it was a problem or, or maybe even going to be a problem? Um. Well, like I said, going back to how I was before all this started, I think I've kind of always had that problem of addiction. Like I have an addict's mind. I don't remember, I don't really remember thinking about it until the end. And it had been about two and a half years and I was working construction for my dad and we were living our lives. And I just distinctly remember going into my bathroom and looking myself in the mirror, and I go, dude, who are you? I just completely lost myself. And I and I don't know how I did this, but I took those pills. I threw them away. I called my doctor. And I said, I'm out. I'm done. I'm not doing it anymore. So I quit uh, six months early. And, yeah, and so. So was that – that that uh, that is I don't know how you did that either without having to go to a treatment know. facility or, or or something else. So, I mean, what as you're going through this and and you have this unlimited supply of pain medication, which I of all people know from watching my my family members struggle with the same type of uh, drugs. It's a very very powerful drug. Were, were you did it get to a point where you were abusing them? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I was taking stupid amounts a day. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I don't even remember them doing anything. It was just like a subconscious take them, you know? Yeah, yeah. It got to that. And, and you know, looking back, I'm not sure what spurred me along, but, man, it hit, it hit me like a like a train upside the head, and I just quit. Huh. Uh, it, no withdrawals, no... I just quit. You just quit. Never went back. Huh. Yep. Well, yeah, that doesn't usually happen. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you, you, my struggles didn't quit. Let me just be clear. I still had, I still had a lot of issues coming up, but yeah, that, that particular thing and, the, and, and, and looking forward in life, like those pills, they could be a problem if I would let it, but that time where I was, yeah, I just cold Turkey quit. I'll be dying. And what, I mean, what, what else were you dealing with alongside, alongside this? I mean, okay. Like I said, I, it's, it's a sad time of my life because I feel like I missed a lot of my kids lives Yeah, at a very important age. I just kind of felt like a zombie. I just don't remember a lot about it. And I think it's probably just, you know, I don't know if it was the 
the uh, medication or the pills or both or what. I mean, I was working. I held a job. I was good at my job. Yeah. I've never had a problem with that, but I just, there was no, I don't remember any depth to me mm -hmm. during that time. Mm -hmm. And how many years ago was this? So this would have been, I think I, I think I stopped in, I want to say, 2000 either like the tail end of 2008 or 2009 because when i stopped that's when the economy was so bad yep and i that's when i switched careers yep and i i told my my interview board i said look i don't need a job i have a job so if i have an issue medically and you're gonna hang me out to dry don't hire me because i got i got pro i've had problems and I don't want any skeletons in the closet. I'm being upfront with you. So it was pretty quick after that, you know, that I switched careers. Yeah. So did you, once you made that, that switch, I mean, I went, I'm trying to understand, like, when did you, at, at this time frame, you make that switch? Are you now back in a good place where you feel like you're part of of your chi your children's lives? Um, you, you're you're good with your wife, your your faith, that type of stuff. I mean, this has been a lot of ups and downs, man. I mean, did you recover fairly quickly after this bout too? Or you know, I've been thinking a lot about that recently, and I think uh, I think I just kept going forward. I don't even think I processed the whole thing. Yeah. I think I just moved forward and, uh, I, it needed to happen. I don't, I don't think, you know, I don't want to speak for my wife, but I, I don't, I don't know if, uh, switching to line work, you got to understand from 20 to 30, I was sick and I relied yeah. on my parents. So like that whole time of becoming a man and finding your way, I got robbed of that. Yeah. You know, and line work gave me that. It pushed me. It was uncomfortable. Gotcha. I had to start traveling. All these things that it really spurred me along of just who I am as a man. Mm -hmm. And I needed that. I think mm -hmm. our, I know our marriage needed that. And uh, so, yeah. So once I got into line work, well, then I'm on the road. So I went literally from that to being on the road. And I, like I said, I don't think I ever fully, I didn't work through that, you know? Well, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I just kept, I just kept going. Yeah. So, which led to a lot more problems. Yeah. That's got to come to a head at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And this, you're talking problems, um, spiritually, emotionally within your marriage or more health problems. No, so so that was it. As far as the cancer goes, that's it. That, that was, was the last bout. That was it. Um, my son, he just turned thirteen. When he was born, I was going through that, and uh, I've been clean since. Awesome. And uh, I don't, I don't get any yearly checkups. I don't, I don't do any of that. And uh, we just, my wife and I decided at some point, you still have to live your life. So mm -hmm. how much are you going to subject yourself? to these tests and mm -hmm. more radiation. I mean, like I've been subjected to more radiation than probably anyone I'll ever meet. Yeah, I'm sure. So at what point 
do you say, okay, God, you got me? Or I'm going to sweat the small things and just stress this the rest of my life. Yeah. And we just chose to let it go. Yeah. And I haven't been tested since. So. Well, at what point does this transition now into line work, you not processing what you had just went through, not only with cancer, but with the, the pills and all that stuff. Now you make this switch. You're on the road. You're essentially running and gunning, man. Mm-hmm. Where does this come to a head? And, and you've, Obviously, you've made some changes. Yeah, yeah. Because you're a good dude now. I mean, you feel like and think I was, you're in a solid place and here's, now. Here's the thing: I was a good dude then. Well, yeah, I just yeah. made bad choices. That's right. And I, uh, I got into this routine. Line work, you where you make your money is overtime. So we work a mm-hmm. lot. Well, unfortunately, being on the road, being with your buddies, it ends up a lot of drinking after work. Mm-hmm. And I got into this cycle of work, drink, work, sleep, drink, mm-hmm. work, drink, sleep. I mean, you know, before you know it, I mean, that's a bad rut to get into. And I see it a lot. Um, that went on for years, you know, and even at home or just on the road. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. Even at home. And is this your wife have a, have a good foundation of faith? Super solid. Was she not calling you out on this? Um, she did towards the end, but no. Okay. You know, I don't, I don't think I probably, I don't think I probably drank as much as I did on the road when I would be home, but I would still drink on the, on the road. I mean, when I was home. Yeah. It just became a, it it became a nightly thing. I mean, I literally drank every night for years and, uh, I was good at it in the sense that I never showed up late. It never affected my job. No one would ever know if I was drinking. Didn't look like a problem. Massive problem, but it didn't look like it. Yeah. You know, massive problem for me. So this went on for years, and I worked a lot of jobs, and it just became a cycle of, it was just a bad, vicious cycle of me being on the road, coming home, not having a very good weekend, and then going back on the road. It just was like that for years. And um, I want to say probably seven years go by of this. And I was working in Yuma, which is about two and a half hours from my house. And I, and I had been feeling, I had been feeling God tell me like, dude, you got to get a grip. This is out of control. Yeah. And I went. I went through this daily of, you're right, today's the day. And I would go to work. I'd come home. And before you know it, I'd already have a beer in my hand or I'd be at the store buying a beer. Mm-hmm. Subconsciously, I lost the battle before it ever started. And then at that night, I would drink and I'd be, because I've always had a relationship with Christ. So I'd be praying, God, forgive me for I'm weak. Yeah. You know, for years I prayed that you would break the chains of this addiction that has me bound up. And it bothered me that it was the one thing in my life that I didn't have control over. It just ate me up. Mm-hmm. But you still felt the con- conviction there, oh, yeah. which is, I, I think is a, that's a beautiful thing because I, I think the, the, the one that you can't come back from is when you no longer can 
can feel that conviction. Mm-hmm. And that's that reprobate mind. Yeah. When you no longer see yeah. the the uh, you know the the destruction uh that's being caused by your lifestyle choice. Right. So that's beautiful that he and that's a testament that he never left you or forsook you even during that time where you're consciously you know you're making these bad decisions. Yeah. You know what he wants you to do. You're begging him for forgiveness and admitting your weakness to him. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's awesome, man. Yeah, it's interesting. Awesome part of your testimony. We were talking it with Paul's family and Amy brought it up. She said, When you when you were healed of your cancer, were you just like living life, high on life? And I'm like, never really thought about that. But no, I wasn't. I went right down another bad avenue. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even, you know, it's like such a, I don't know if it's opportunity missed or what, but I just looking back, it's like, man, how do you? Oh, that's what makes your story how so. How do you come out of that and get yourself in another thing? That's what makes your story so different, man, is because most people that would have, that would have or have had a similar story to yours as it as, as it pertains to cancer, um, when they got that diagnosis that it's gone right Mm -hmm. that would have sent them on some path not you you know and it wouldn't have looked like yours looked i don't yeah you don't think at least that's what you hear uh, about i was i was uh i was hemmed up financially i had built a a nice house uh back in like 07 and i missed the mark of selling it and i got stuck with it and i did the right thing what I felt was right, what what July and I felt was right, and we kept the house, and we paid that house. And we kept that house for like six or seven years. And that I worked just to pay for that house. I was financially strapped and obligated to that. And so I didn't really feel like I had much choice. Yeah, I just had to work, and that's all I did. Yep. And uh, I didn't know this at the time, but all I did was drink to bury all that. Mm-hmm. And I was probably burying my cancer stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, you know, uh, but I just didn't. I didn't see it. That's some significant trauma. Yeah, that you've been through up to this point right here. Yeah. Um. So, dude, you're feeling convicted about this lifestyle that you're living. You said your wife started pointing it out at the end. What, what you know? Did how did that feel? Oh, I mean, nobody wants to feel like a loser, right? I mean, I take pride in being the a good example for those around me. And when you realize... How does she approach you? Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really remember if she actually straight up called me out. Um, I just remember she. I remember. I th- I don't know if I think I was kind of searching at that point in time I think I was kind of struggling to make a change I was tired of the life I was living I know I was I was tired of the life I was living I didn't really know how to turn the page and she actually bought me Rich Roll's book and that book spurred it changed my life really yeah huh it did because his story resonated with me the reason he drank how he connected to alcohol hit me hit me like side of the head and it and it really made me think okay you're i think at the time i was probably 37 i'm 40 now 
Like, you can do this. And that's what his story's about. And I read that book and something shifted in me. And I still I still would work and I still struggled with God, you know, that that voice of saying, You need to quit, you need to quit. And honestly, I felt like it was gonna take something really tragic, like a car accident, something like that, to snap me out of this. But about a year had gone by, I fixed my diet, didn't drink as much, but I still drank. And I finally just said, you know what? All right, I'll listen to you. I'll quit drinking for one year and I'll see if it fixes my problems. And I did. And I just quit. So a year went by and I, uh, I didn't really get the effects that I thought because for the first time, well, now I'm having to face my emotions I'm having to face these things instead mm-hmm. of just burying them. And then I start realizing that that's what I've been doing this whole time. I just don't want to deal with this stuff. And I didn't, I didn't realize that was happening. So yeah, I'm actually more angry not drinking than I was drinking because I just didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how there would be an anticipation when you made this conscious effort to say, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop this for a year and see how this, there, there's an expectation that your life is going to be changed in a positive way, you know? Yeah. And then the, the actual reality is no, no, <laughs> not at all. No, I, actually it's rougher now because I'm having to deal with, with all this stuff, not only past trauma, yeah. but day-to-day stress, well, anxiety. It is, it is a positive way. It just doesn't feel it good. It doesn't feel good. No, it don't, it no, doesn't feel good. It don't feel good at all. But it it's um it's it's positive because it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Reality sometimes is not spectacular. Reality sometimes stinks as a matter of fact i've told the story before i remember when uh when my wife got clean uh we went out to ride bicycles like a day or two after she got back from rehab and and this your story really makes me see this in a different light because i can only imagine she also had expectations that when I get when I do get free from these chains of addiction, it's gonna be just spectacular. And we went out to ride bicycles, beautiful day, spring day, everything's just getting green. The sun's out, beautiful trail. We got these brand new bicycles. We go on this ride, and she just looks over at me and she's like, This is it. Like, just total letdown and disappointment that this is it. And I'm like, yeah, this is life. you got to learn. You've got to learn to, like, see how spectacular, I know it sounds corny, but the little things are. Like, the sunshine, the fresh leaves budding out of the trees, the smells, the the fact that we have this environment, this trail here to go and explore today. But 
that was like totally not what she expected life to be without these drugs. Like alcohol is the same thing. Yeah. To to basically numb everything out. Well, and that's for, a big transition, and, man. And for me too, alcohol was always, you know, what I what I finally realized is I wasn't. I was doing things because it gave me an excuse to drink, you know, like what I mean by that is, Hey, you want to go to a baseball game? Oh yeah. Yeah. I can drink during the day there. Yeah. Like everything revolved around me drinking. Yep. Yep. And it was that deep in me. That's powerful. Yeah. For sure, man. So I was just, that's all that mattered. You know, another thing that's interesting to me about your, uh, testimony, John is, I've always believed that there is a a spiritual component to any of these drugs that suck you into dependence, essentially alcohol or opiates or whatever it is. I mean, there's there's hundreds of them out there that there's like legitimately a demonic force attached to those things. And it's really it's really inspiring to me to hear that you still maintained a connection and a a communication in a in a relationship with Jesus while you were struggling through fighting through this darkness and that's exciting to me yeah to hear that humans can because to me it's like when somebody goes down this road of addiction, it's almost like it cancels out any opportunity to be in relationship with Jesus because this this demonic force that is controlling the person through the addiction at this time basically overshadows any opportunity to have companionship with Christ. But for you, you never compl- that was never completely severed. Yeah, and I I agree 100%. I uh I think these these drugs, alcohol, I think it is de- by Satan's design to tear us down, to tear family structure down, all of that. And you're right. I did. I was able to keep that relationship with Christ. And now looking back, the the turmoil that I was in on a daily basis of knowing I'm living wrong, yeah, but still doing, I felt horrible about myself and it was a daily beatdown of just inner turmoil of living my life. Wow. And that I didn't realize how much that affected me for years and it did. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't realize that until I come out of it. Mm-hmm. But I I wanted to mention this book because it also was a huge helped me quitting drinking and it's called uh this naked this naked mind by annie grace and she shifts the that that idea surrounding alcoholism that hey you know is it possible that this is just a highly addictive drug that's been accepted yeah it is you know and uh that book helped me a lot just changed my whole thought process around drinking Mm mm-hmm as not a normal thing, not something you have to do as an adult. Yep. Not something you have to do at the baseball field, you know? Yeah. And, you know, the fact that alcohol is a legal drug yep. is a testament to the fact that it is probably the most destructive and powerful drug on earth. 
They can't ban it. Yeah. It's so powerful and it has so much control over society, yeah. culture, and humanity. They can't ban it. They can ban other drugs and make them illegal. They can't get rid of alcohol. No. It's that powerful. Yeah. They've tried and it, it doesn't it doesn't work. Yeah. And I think I think a lot of people have a are in a good place with it. Like my wife, for example, she can have a glass of wine and she won't have another glass of wine for six months. And she could care less if she has that one. So there are people that can manage it. But I think a lot of people don't realize what they're actually doing with it. You know, when I when I started, when I quit drinking, I started surrounding my, or people start seeing that I quit drinking. And they said, well, how come you're not drinking? And my response was, well, because I'm an alcoholic. And I said that because how are you going to argue with me? I'm drawing the fine line because I'm an alcoholic. I got a problem. I can't tell you how many people's response to that was, well, I don't drink that much. I said, well, who's talking about you? You're talking about me. Yeah. But immediately they start internalizing, well, I drink a lot. Does that mean, what am I doing? Yeah. They start seeing this. And I think that there's a lot of people that use alcohol for that reason and don't realize it. Oh, I agree 100%. You know, I just thought the war, the government can say, Church, you can't meet. And everybody's like, well, uh, all right. But if they said, Americans, you can't drink, you want to talk about a government overthrow? They tried that. I know. Yeah. But you can you imagine it today? If they said, you can no longer buy alcohol anymore. Oh. You don't talk about total collapse of the government. Yeah. That, who's it? Well, I mean, that's a testament to who's in charge. Yeah, exactly. Uh, of, of this current yeah. Uh, well, of the earth, since, since the fall of mankind, who's in charge? Yeah. Who's the prince of the power of the air that we're surrounded yep. by? Right? Um, dang it, man. Oh, man. Well. That's yeah, nasty stuff. Yeah, it, it, it really is. So how did you, how are you, or how did you get to the point where, or, or are you even there yet? You know, you said when you no longer had this drug to kind of cover up the day-to-day feelings, past and present, uh, you got off of that. You no longer had that as whatever, whatever you want to call it, a crutch, uh, a cover, or whatever. How did you work yourself into the position that you're able to manage day-to-day? So... Or maybe you didn't work yourself there. I mean, I don't want to put put words behind it. It's yeah. Just... So I quit for a year. I did what I said. Mm-hmm. I quit for a year. Never had a sip. Um, I got done with that. And I was like, you know, that wasn't even that big a deal. You know, maybe I don't have a problem. Oh, okay. And uh, <clears throat> I slowly started drinking. And what's interesting about that, a couple things. One... It was so sick to me. My friends were so excited for me to drink again. Yeah. And I straight up called them out like, hey, you realize you're my friends, right? And you know I've had a problem, but yet you want me to go drink beer with you. What's wrong with you? And they were fired up, like trying to get me to drink again. And I... You know, it's things like that. And, and you know, this is coming on the time that I met you guys and started getting involved with this family. And you really start questioning, like, 
who are you surrounding yourself by? Mm-hmm. So anyways, I, I caved in and I was like, yeah, whatever. It's been a year. That wasn't actually that hard for me. And it wasn't. I just made up my mind. I did it. So I slowly started drinking. Where I was going with that is what's interesting is I hated the taste. It tasted terrible after a year of not having it. Uh huh. A beer. It didn't matter what it was. And I, and I remember having this too when I would, because ha- I couldn't drink on chemotherapy. It's terrible. And I pushed through it. <laughs> and I got to where it didn't taste that bad. Yeah. And it only is about two weeks. And next thing you know, I find myself in my shop where I'm alone doing my thing, tinkering on stuff solely because I can drink beer in there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm ashamed for my wife to see it. Mm-hmm. That's all it was. And luckily, I recognized that, and I nipped it in the butt, and I quit. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's it. I mean, occasionally I'll have something, but honestly, I don't even like it anymore. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It doesn't do anything for me. Mm-hmm. It actually makes me feel worse. I've really grown. I love how I feel. I love being healthy. I love how I sleep. Mm-hmm. You know, sleep is night and day. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I just closed the door on it. Dealing with the day-to-day emotional stuff. How, how I mean, how is that, how is that going? It's rough. Yeah. It's been tough. What's your plan for that? Well, thank God my wife is patient. She, uh, she's my best friend. She is not a uh, soft woman by any means. She calls me out. She holds me accountable. By the way, I wish you would have brought her with you. It would have been interesting to hear her perspective on a lot of this stuff going through it. Yeah. From look at, you know, from the outside. So no, you're right. Okay. It would be. Um, so like I said, thank God she's patient. She helps me a lot, uh, work through these things, but you know, that that's, that's what I'm finding out at 40 years old. I'm just not very good at dealing with my own crap. Mm-hmm. So just it's trying to, you know, three of seven and what you guys have brought to my life has been a game changer. There's so many tools and it's just like this weekend and spending time with Paul and all these things. I'm, I'm growing and God's moving in my life. It's a process. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to do it with grace and giving myself grace. So I'm too hard on myself with a lot of this, but at the same time, it takes a lot of commitment, a lot of dedication. There is no quick, easy fix. It doesn't exist. So it's just the celebrating the small wins, I would say. The daily wins is what I'm shooting for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm trying to do. It's a daggone heck of a testimony right there, brother. I'm going to tell you right now, man. I think that this, well, this story that you've just kind of walked us through, John, should encourage a lot of Christians out there that aren't in the place that they want to be in, that, that, that aren't in day-to-day life, aren't living the life that they want to be living, right? Um, to know that you can, that you, that, that, 
Jesus is not going to leave you or forsake you in those moments, that he's still there. You can still cry out to him, even if you're living in this place day after day and you're just too weak to work your way out of it whatever the activity whatever the action whatever the Mm -hmm. the the thoughts are that you can still cry don't be ashamed man cry out to him he's still there he's not gonna turn his back on you man and and he and he's eventually going he's patient he's long suffering with you and when you are in in the place that you do have the strength to make the change that you want to make and you know you need to make, he's going to be standing there ready to receive you and your family on the other side of it yeah. and build you back up and walk you through that process. Somewhere in Psalms, it, it says, the psalmist writes that he is our hiding place. And to me, that's always just kind of stuck out because like, you know, when you go to your hiding place, it's like somewhere you can just like take a wrap off. So when you're in those spots, uh, you know, like what you dealt with for that whole 10 years, it's like, man, I can go in here and everything's okay. You know, I can just be comfortable and know that God's got me. And that's just like what you're saying, you know. Mm-hmm. But to me too, the flip side of that is that you that are healthy living what you think is a good life and all this and that, know that you are not guaranteed the remainder of the day you're living in, that tomorrow, God forbid, tomorrow something that just like happened to John could happen to you, and the time is now for everything that you want to do, for anything you need to tell somebody, anybody you need to reach out to, anything you need to do, the time is is today, like, you have to do these things with a sense of urgency. You don't have that doesn't mean be a rush in everything, but it means what do we talk about? Being deliberate. It means be deliberate with everything you do and don't just do something when you don't have a reason to be doing it, you know? Yeah, that's it. Live with purpose. What is um what is your I mean from a from a practical or tangible standpoint now? What is it? What does your day to day look like as far as the the your, your family life, your personal life, um, you know, both body, soul, and spirit? I mean, what what is what does that day to day look like for you now? So, I realize uh, I'm not putting in the effort I need to in the Word, and uh, one of my good friends he explained it to me like this. He said, look, you can't go to battle with a 22. He said, that's the purpose of the word. Mm -hmm. You need to get into the word and get yourself a 45 Mm -hmm. when you can protect yourself. And I read every day, but I read at the end of my day. I'm giving, I'm giving God the worst of me because I'm tired. It's been a long day. I'm training. So, what I'm really trying to do is implement a little bit of Paul Wilder in my life and get up 21 minutes early and take that time to learn, to grow, mm-hmm. and just have that more uh, ammunition behind what I'm saying. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, just that. I'm trying to build a standard for my kids, my wife, the guys I work around, whether or not they agree with it or not. 
just trying to uphold a standard that I've set for myself and that's it. I mean, you're trying to put a few more bullets in your mag. That's it. First thing, look, John just brought us these mags. It takes my Glock 43X from a 10 round capacity to a 15 round capacity, right? Yeah, that's that's really what getting up that and, and giving that part of your day initially to God, whether it's in prayer or whether it's in reading the word or that's what it's doing. It's giving you more ammunition to get through that day, essentially. And it's honoring him with the best part of you. Right. It, 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 I, I like the way you put that, John. That's yeah. awesome, man. Um, so you got to talk to me a little bit about the, your, your, your fitness journey, because yeah. I, th I think that's obviously a huge part of your life. Now you're training for an Ironman, uh, you're, you're super fit. Um, and was this always a part of your life? So this was kind of going back to Rich Roll's book. Yeah. Just that idea that you can be something at 40. And, uh, yeah, so I set a goal for myself. I've, I've never done triathlons in my life. Um, but I turned 40 this year, and I want to be able to say this is me at 40. Mm -hmm. And uh, more, more just from a – I think part of it was it takes up a lot of my time. So it takes a lot of the um, – that – thought of drinking or making bad decisions. I don't, I don't have time for it. I work, I train, I try to still say, keep some time for my family, you know, and that's it. That's all I got time for. Yeah. And, uh, so it's been good. It keeps me busy. The other thing is too, I, I've had a pattern of starting something and not finishing it, you know, not work. Work has never been an issue for me, Yeah. but anything that betters myself you know, I've always had guilt around that. And I've always, it's just never been a priority to me. And like coming out and doing the basic course, the proving ground, that's for me. This is the first time I've invested in me. Yeah. And I, I never, my wife has always had a good balance of this. And I think even going back before, it probably bothered me if I'm being real. But it's so true. If you're not investing in yourself, well, good luck trying to help someone else. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah, I mean that the whole training thing is just that I set a goal. I want to finish it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's kind of funny. I, so I've been doing, I've done an Olympic. I've got a 70.3 coming up, but all the Ironmans, the one forties, they've all been messed up because of COVID, how they've rolled over. Yeah. So I've been on a waiting list for like six months in Tempe and I pretty much just accepted the fact that I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to do my own. It's not going to be a event, but I'm going to do the, the distances. Right. And just yesterday I got an email spot opened up. So no I, kidding, I signed man. up for it. Yeah. So I got it in November. Wow. And honestly, I'm terrified, <laughs> 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 but we're going to figure it out. Yeah, man. Oh, it's, it's going to be a proper challenge. That's for sure. Oh man. yeah. But Dude, you're looking fit right now, and and you know, and and you're you're showing. I mean, the the bike ride today, super strong. I, yeah. I I didn't expect any less from you, anyways, because I've seen you operate at the basic course and the proving grounds, neither of which are um, walks in the park. That's for sure. Um, 
So I, I, I of course, I have a hundred percent faith in you accomplishing that mission. And I can only imagine that the the way you carry yourself now, as far as being a athlete, it's got to impact the guys that you're working around, and like it's got to give you more credibility. You know, when they see you, yeah, as you are now, yeah, you know what I mean. Yep, that's such a huge part of it. Oh, I, yeah. I, I think, you you know, within the within the body of Christ, uh, I think f- overall fitness and physique and just the way you carry yourself is something that's been completely just missed um, within you know. The church building, local local bodies, uh, you know, of believers and stuff, you know. But look, man, this is a big part. The way that you carry yourself, your fitness, the way that you look. I'm not saying you got to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger, but like this is a big part of your credibility as a as a witness. Yeah, as somebody who whose primary job it is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the way you look has something to do with that in the eyes of an unbeliever, in the eyes of the world. Well, it, I it mean, matters. We were at the airport, and this, this lady walks past us as we're, you know, zigzagging in the little lines, and just a slob. And she has this shirt on that says, busy doing nothing. And Chad said, well, you didn't have to have that. He didn't tell her this. We're talking. He said, and she didn't have to have that shirt on to for us to know that, you know. But, but that's just. I mean, you can look at people and tell they're driving life. Like, I mean, maybe not in the end because I mean, maybe that person had just lost a hundred pounds and they're on their journey. But you can kind of tell how someone's carrying themselves if they're motivated or not in doing things. And so even beyond, you know. Even if you're not a Christian, it still says something about how how driven you are about getting things done. Like first, you got to take care of yourself before you can go do anything else. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking like that, you ain't taking care of nothing, you know. And you, you look, man, you don't have an excuse in my book. Mm-hmm. I heard Andy Frasilla say one time, "If you're a thousand pounds, start with doing this." <laughs> Yeah. yeah, just start. like that's it. You have no excuse, man. Yeah, and, and I don't, I don't believe people like that. They're not in a good place. It's all front. Like, be real with yourself. You know, you're not happy with yourself. Yeah. So to wear that shirt with some kind of pride to me is like, yeah, oh yeah, she was fooling? proud of. It. Who are you fooling? No, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way you can be happy about yourself like that. Yeah. Mm. But. Well. I'll tell you what, Big John. I got a lot out of that conversation, man. Yeah. I appreciate you having the courage to come and uh and walk us through that, dude. That's a lot to talk that's a lot to talk about in yeah. one sitting. It's the first time I've ever done it. <laughs> <laughs> like any one of those things would have been sufficient for an entire conversation oh, yeah. and we just talked through two three four five essentially right yeah 
it's just uh I, I mean that's powerful, man. Like I could say I I think we need to go for a run. I don't know where I don't know where it goes. And well no you, you probably don't you probably don't remember my applications as basic course, but I told you God didn't save me just to be a lineman. Yeah. Right? That was my initial thought. But then going to what Blake says, maybe that's it. Maybe that's all it is. Maybe I'm just a light in this trade. And if I am, well, I'm good with that. You know? Well, you, but I, yeah. But I just, I don't know. I just feel like there's more. I just think, just think there's more. I well, just don't know what it is yet. I, I agree. I mean, uh, but the thing is, I, I don't think there's ever a culmination. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't know that there's ever a time, no matter at what, uh, what, what member you're serving as within the body of Christ. Like, I, I, I'm, and I say what member because it's not at what level, because everyone that's serving within the body, everyone's job is just as important as everyone's job. Yeah. So it's it's what member you're serving as. I don't think there's ever a place where it all culminates and you just say, ah, I've reached it. This is what it's leading me to. This is what well, it was yeah. all leading me to. Yeah, that helped me out a lot. Just the, when you guys were talking about the yoga and when you talked about, when Blake talked about that, you're either moving forward or you're moving backwards. There's no, there's no standing still. And that's that, right. And I've never really thought of it, but that's it. And that's when it comes down to every day. Are you going to choose to move forward or are you going backwards? That's it. And that's it. And that really, really resonated with me. And it helped me, it helped pull me out of some funk I had. So I appreciate that. So why, why even, why even think about like, where is this, where is this going? Like, yeah. it's all right to have some awareness of, of what you, uh, or maybe, maybe anticipate your next move or have some awareness of what you should be doing in order to move forward. Right. But to me, it could potentially be a waste of energy to think, where is this? Where is this leading? Yes, of course, there's more, because you have more life to live. Yeah, Lord willing, we all have more life. To, if we have more life to live, then yes, there is more. But um, I, I mean, I find myself thinking. I, I've had those same thoughts, John, of like, you know, where is this going? Three or seven project. Uh, I've, I've had people ask me all the time, like, what do you want? Ultimately, what do you want? I've had big, big entrepreneurs ask me that question. And uh, I, I'm not a, I guess I'm not a businessman because I can't answer that question. Yeah. I've asked myself, where is this going? <laughs> I don't know. I'm just going to sit down every day. And do work like this. God's giving me, God has given me the opportunity to sit down and hear your testimony today. This is my work for today. Uh, every day I'm just going to do the work that he gives me to the best of my ability. And where it goes, I have no freaking clue. Well, and it's much less stressful to be that way. Like if you have this goal in mind and you're just constantly striving for that, you're probably missing the mark for what God had have has for you, and you're also wasting a lot of energy trying to get. You know, I mean, we've only been in business for two and a half years, but God has grown and sustained what we're doing, and 
I mean, we might look a little bit ahead and say, hey, let's kind of start working on this. And we and, and if it hits the wall, we just change it. But there's when people ask, where, where do you see yourself in five years? For me, I can I can never answer that question when someone says, where can you see your business in five years? You, you know why? Because it's it is a different. It, it is so much different when you're working within the confines of the body of Christ yeah. than you than when you're working in the confines of the world. Mm-hmm. And the reason big entrepreneurs ask us, "What do you want? Where will you be in five years?" We talked about this earlier. Is because when you're working in the confines of the world and business. You have to be able to answer that question before you start anything, right? And this is what most entrepreneurs that I know, highly successful, they have the answer to this question. Where do I want to be in five years? Before they even launch the project, they say, well, I want to be at this point, whether it's the point that I can sell this and cash out, the point that I'm hitting this these certain numbers, Um but when you're working within the confines of ministry, essentially, you can't answer that because yeah. it's not yours. It's a very different lane to be yeah. in. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, man, that's some deep thought right there. I mean, deep for me anyways. I know you guys listen to this maybe like, Chad, that ain't that freaking deep, but... <laughs> Maybe y'all have already all thought about all this stuff, but you know, John posing that question of I don't know where it's all going makes me think about that in my own life. Well, it's like what are the currency you're you're working for? Or or what is the re- the return that we're getting for our investment is not centrally focused around money. Like we gotta make money to live and be able to do this. But really we wanna make a difference. So we want the result of our actions and work to be people's lives changed and if you're in business to make money then you want the result of your actions to be dollars in your bank account and i think that's where the difference lies is are you really working to change people's lives or are you really working to make money there's going to be both in both areas but what's the overarching focus what's if you, the primary initiative yeah like when we had to talk about the proven ground and we said during the coronavirus that what well, you said it we're going to do this even if we lose money. It doesn't matter because we care that much about making a difference in these people's lives. If we cannot make money on this event, we are still going to have it even if it costs us money. If we lose and we have to put our own money out of our bank account to make it happen, we're going to do it because we believe that much in the mission that it's going to change people's lives. And if it only changes five people's lives because only five people show up, five, that's five people! Yeah, you can make an turn. John talked about the ripple effect so many times in this podcast, and how he 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 that's such a big part of his ministry. Yep, and it's like, dude, I a hundred percent. All I if I get five people for a weekend, and it costs me ten. If it costs me ten thousand dollars, but I get to make an eternal impact in five lives. Uh-huh. Holy smokes, that's huge, man. Yep, that's huge, and you know. Nothing we're doing can be sold for profit. Nothing John is doing can be sold for profit. We simply have to take what God puts before us every day. Thank God he gives us direction. Thank God he's got us in an environment where there are people 
that we can witness to and be light uh, be light to. Mm-hmm. Thank God for that opportunity. Holy crap, man. Why would you ever want to sell that? Yeah. You spend your life doing that. Yeah, there's no amount of money that it... No. You could never put a price on it. You got something to say, John? No, I just... You know, that that whole thought just brings me back to what we were talking about. That that God hole that you have in your life that you can't you can't fulfill with anything but Christ. You can pack it with whatever you want. But the only fulfillment you're going to get is through Christ. It's the only time that will be fed. Yeah. Agreed, brother. Um, Blake, you got anything else? No. Big John, you got anything else you want to share? Yeah, I just I just want to share, you know, to to both of you and the three of fa- the three of seven family. I've made a lot of good connections here. You guys have truly impacted my life and uh i'm just so thankful to be a part of it praise jesus brother yeah. well likewise we appreciate you john it's because of men like you that are that are uh willing to come and put in the hard work the hard yards willing and hungry but then also generous enough to pay the fee to come yeah. and do the things that we do that's the only way this exists. We have to have members of this body that are willing, hungry, and also able uh, and generous enough to pour into this so that it can all happen. It's not me. <laughs> it's nothing I did. Yeah. So, brother, we're thankful for you. Uh, we got a big, big mission coming up next month. I can't wait for that. It's going to be another awesome chapter of growth, I think, for all of us, for for you guys as team members, and then for us as instructors going into a new and challenging environment. Um, I'm fired up, man. I say we go. I say we go for a run. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I got some things to do today. (laughs) Blake's got a flat tire, huh? (laughs) All right, guys. Thanks for tuning in. This is the 307 Podcast. Enough said.